0: Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at Political underscore Beats. Find us on Facebook as well. Search for Political Beats. We ask you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes. Get them through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or right at NationalReview.com. Click on the podcast link. You'll find all the fine NR podcasts and audio, including back episodes of Political Beats Listen, enjoy, share, and please leave reviews to help others find the program. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, is Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you?
1: Well, if people want to hear me, Scott, you can tell them that I'm easily found. You can tell them there's a spot on National Review. You can tell them there's a podcast on The Edge of (laughs) Town.
0: Jeff is on Twitter at esoteric CD. And we, uh, welcome our guest for today's program. And we kept it in house today. He's a senior writer at national review and on Twitter at baseball crank. He's Dan McLaughlin. Dan, thanks for joining us once again.
2: Glad to be here. No Dan, sin to be glad you're here.
0: Yes. Dan joined us previously for our Tom Petty and the heartbreakers episode. And he's back again today. Uh, before we get to our, our artist, Dan, give people a little background on yourself and what you're doing. Your your job title has shifted since your last uh, appearance here on Political Beat, so uh, tell people about that.
2: Yeah, so um, uh, I started as a politics—I'm a senior writer now at National Review. I started as a politics columnist in college. Our sports columnist at the time was uh, Bill Simmons, who now runs The Ringer, so— uh, my sort of short bio is I started writing uh, baseball blogging essentially on Bill's site when he was back in uh, Boston uh, in 2000, um, you know, after terrorists blew up my office and uh, then in the World Trade Center, I felt the pull of politics again, started blogging, did some various group blogs. I was at Red State from 2004, to 2016, um, came over to National Review in uh, 2016. And just this March, um, I got an offer to, from National Review to come in-house full-time. Uh, so after 23 years of practicing law, I became a full-time writer, uh, now senior writer at National Review. And um, so essentially in, in mid-March of 2020, when the entire world was going to temporarily working from home, I went to permanently working from home.
0: And of course, people can find uh, writings alongside the podcasts at nationalreview.com. Dan is back with us today to take a swing at uh, one of those big, uh, I don't know, big apples that are still out there, the the low hanging fruit for us to to pick. Uh, Almost certainly our most requested artist to do an episode on. And so big, of course, we break this into two parts. This part one for Bruce. Springsteen. Dan, we invite you to take the floor. Tell us why you love Bruce Springsteen, how you got into him, and why anybody else should care about the music made by The Boss.
2: Sure. Well, I, I was born in 1971 in Teaneck, New Jersey, so I'm, I'm roughly about the same age as Bruce's recording career. <laughs> um, my parents were Manhattan people, but they, uh, growing up, but they uh, dated and courted on the shore. We vacationed on the shore a good deal when I was a kid. Um, I grew up in Nanuet, New York, which is literally the next town over from Blauvelt, where 914 Studios is, where Bruce recorded Born to Run, uh, as well as some of his uh, earlier albums. Um, You know, my dad was a cop. I grew up among the basically Irish and Italian Catholic children of cops and firemen. Um, I I went to high school in uh, northern New Jersey. Um, in uh, Montvale, New Jersey uh, from 1985 to 89. So all of which is a way of saying I grew up very much in a Bruce Springsteen world. Um, uh, I got into rock and roll generally uh, and Bruce in particular in the early 80s uh, through my older brother's record collection so he got the river which is really where I started hearing Bruce. guess born in the USA coming out when I was about 14 is really the point at which Bruce became my favorite artist um and has been essentially the soundtrack of my life more than any other artist uh, ever since then um you know I have probably like a thousand Bruce tracks or something in my my out of about 8,000 or so (laughs) in my iTunes library um I would say Uh, for as a, as a caution here that I would consider myself sort of a a brown belt in Bruce Springsteen, um, (laughs) in the sense that, you know, compared to an ordinary normal human being, I have a ridiculous amount of my brain devoted to Bruce, um, but at the same time, there are people who are an entire level of Bruce fandom above me that I just have to bow in their presence. You know, I, I haven't seen Bruce like a hundred times in concert. I've seen him four times in full concert uh, and a handful of other times, in you know, one off appearances here and there. Um, so I'm not you know, I'm not one of the guys who can off the top of his head tell you the best five shows of every single Bruce tour uh, or, or something like that. But I, I have. Uh, I've been a Bruce guy for a long time, and I think we'll get probably more in the second episode into some of the reasons Bruce is particularly important to me.
1: So the weird thing about me is that I am actually a black belt when it comes to Bruce Springsteen. I can tell you every single show that he ever played from the years 1972 say to 1980 that's of any note or any importance all the best recordings where the rarities are where he played that you know uh that one early version of zero and blind terry called phantoms back in 1973 opening for the band chicago in their stadium tour i can tell you all about that kind of weird stuff the odds the ends everything that fell through the cracks i know all of that stuff. In fact, there was a period in my life where I was absolutely obsessed with Bruce Springsteen's, particularly his his concert recordings and his outtakes, those sorts of things. I I, I still have this stuff uh, deposited, you know, you know, in sort of you know the mental filing cabinet of my brain, and I can <laughs> I can recall almost all of it broadly. Um, and ironically enough, these days I, I have a much more skeptical uh, opinion of, of Springsteen than than you do or maybe even than Scott does. That's a very strange place to, to sort of evolve into. and I don't really know if it's his fault. I think perhaps it's overplaying <clears throat> this music and hearing it overplayed and sort of maybe sort of the, the – what do you want to call it? The boomer ubiquity of Bruce Springsteen. We have to really understand what Springsteen meant to a certain generation of listeners, too. This is this is something. How did I get into him? I got him because of my dad. My dad's older than all of us. You know, he's born in 1943, right? And so he was like what. He was in his late uh, late twenties when Bruce Springsteen first got you know big. Actually, it's probably his early thirties when when like you know the Innocent and Born to Run were out and they were big, uh, and he saw him in you know the pre Born to Run era. He saw him at Carter Barron Amphitheater in Washington D.C. He saw him playing small clubs. He he saw him. He got both time and newsweek when bruce springsteen was on the cover of both simultaneously back that one week in 1975 you know uh so i grew up at the foot of my father learning about the myth of the boss and what it meant to a guy my dad's from new york from western new york though he's not from like the new york city area but you know he still spoke to him on a way that that no artist prior to him had, because what did Springsteen do? He wasn't just you know, a rock and roller. He was literate and he was poetic, and maybe too sort of self consciously Dylan Ask in his early career, which yeah. we'll talk about. But but he he was just the absolute embodiment of, of you know, rock and roll energy, especially in his live act. But there were other parts about it that my dad found almost idealistic. That this guy was representing uh, rock and roll, particularly in the '70s, as as something that it was always supposed to be. It was you know it was fun, it was sexy, but it wasn't salacious. It was innocent. There was a power to it, but there was there wasn't there wasn't like a darkness or a threateningness to it, which would come into his music a little bit later on. He also pointed out how it was an effortlessly integrated band. A band that just had two African-American members in it, an Italian guy, and a bunch of Irish guys. A Dutch guy, Bruce Springsteen is Dutch. I remember, uh, you know, there used to be the jokes that all the Jewish mothers would like Bruce Springsteen. It's like, "Oh, Bruce Springsteen, he's such a nice young Jewish boy," because <laughs> they thought the name was Jewish. But no, it's a Dutch Reformed name actually. Uh, the effortless integration of that band, uh, especially you know, in an era that was coming out of the sixties was almost like a representation of, you know, our better angels and what we could be as a culture. These guys were just his friends, guys he knew growing up. Dave Sanchez, Clarence Clemens, you know, these are just guys that he met. It wasn't like he was consciously trying to do this. It was sort of like an East Coast version of what Sly and the Family Stone was during their early years. So you had all of that going for Springsteen and then you had the music. The music which kept evolving and changing album by album. And of course he took his sweet and bitter time moving from one album to the next, uh, which, of course, is half the story of Bruce Springsteen's artistic evolution. So you had all of this, and this is, of course, I think his decade, the 70s, going all the way up to, say, 1980, which is at the river, which is where we're going to be ending this show. This is the Springsteen decade, and there are people who never liked Springsteen and will never get him. I have a Russian friend who simply is incapable of understanding why people like Bruce Springsteen because I think maybe on a cultural level it's just totally alien to him. Like there's there's nothing like the Jersey Shore in Moscow, right? <laughs> and so if you don't know about this, you're not going to you know you don't have these sort of cultural touchstones and reference points, maybe Springsteen won't mean anything to you. But he meant an enormous amount to me and to my family growing up as a kid and I have to say that no matter how jade that i can get at this time no matter how many hot takes i'll have about albums like born in the usa or, or even born to run for that matter this music still holds up and there's a reason he is as scott said probably our most requested artist on this
3: show
4: She moves up She moves back Out on my the floor There's no one playing. She doesn't and She gonna jump back She's got the heart
0: To identify myself as, uh, I will not go as far as to say that, that Bruce Springsteen is, is my Rush, as, uh, as Jeff identified during the Rush episode, of never having knowingly heard a Rush song in his entire life before plotting uh, and, and planning and preparing for our Rush episode. But I will say I have intentionally, through most of my life, um, not delved into the catalog of bruce springsteen i have been surrounded by bruce springsteen fans my entire life uh i've been surrounded by springsteen music my entire life i have heard springsteen songs of course i've heard the singles i've heard virtually every track on born in the usa um uh, you know i, I people have, have have tried to play me things i have never dived deep in fact until prepping for this show i had never Listen to an entire Springsteen album from front to back. And now, of course, I, I have many times over, which is to say, I, I I don't know all of the myth of Springsteen. I don't know all the stories of Springsteen. I don't know uh, uh, certainly the black belt or even brown belt knowledge uh, that that Dan has on Bruce Springsteen. I am a music lover new. Uh, to a vast majority of Bruce Springsteen's music entering this episode. And we'll certainly get into uh, the individual tracks and albums through this first episode. But what I will say from the front is, at least for this decade, as Jeff just defined it, you know, from 71, 72 through through the river in 1980, that I uh, am beginning to understand what makes it so appealing and and why people like it and yes i liked it too um i i I don't know what the hot takes might be from me being a a neophyte uh bruce listener but you'll hear my my thoughts loud and clear through the episode uh and you know the bottom line is i i the weird thing is so many bands that i actually like uh bands that have been putting out music through the 90s and the in the aughts uh, many of the bands I like are pegged as influenced by Bruce Springsteen. Now, certainly there are a ton of bands out there influenced by Bruce, but these specific bands have been oh, they're, you know, very friends with Bruce. They've played with Bruce. Bruce has jammed with them. is very influenced, and I never really could figure that out. And now I, I have, having heard a lot of this stuff from the 70s, because it's it's not Born in the USA that was influencing these bands. It was a lot of the albums we're going to talk about today. So my, my point of view on on the Springsteen music we're going to hear today is from from a guy who largely had not heard uh, a good majority of the music until this week, but comes away with a an, an appreciation of Springsteen uh, the artist uh, and and the writer. We'll talk more about that in a bit. But man, Springsteen the writer, uh, just excellent. Uh, but that, that's where I'm coming from as we talk about this this decade of Springsteen's music.
1: I think the thing that is probably Best to do here is to spare people the sort of the long and I consider somewhat boring story about Bruce Springsteen's early years. and Just sort of get to the interesting stuff. So, I mean, what's the short version of where does Bruce come from, right? You know, he's a guy, he'd been playing in bands, you know, he, of course, grew up on the Jersey Shore uh i think he was born in like long branch or something like that and then uh i think he goes to california for a little while with his family then he comes back to jersey and what does he do he starts lots of rock and roll bands because that's what he loved it's what he loved watching and listening to as a kid so like you know he does all these kind of almost hilariously failed bands there are bootlegs out there of like pre uh 1972 bruce springsteen playing in like these weird power rock like <laughs> you know Bands like called Steel Mill. He's actually got a lot of the members of what would become the East Street Band. He's got like Vini Lopez there and Danny Federici and Steve Van Zant and stuff like that. But this music is just so wrong. I don't know. So, I mean, I know Dan has heard some of this, right? Um, this music doesn't work. It doesn't. It doesn't. It, he doesn't have any of his songs yet, too. So, like you know, he's playing like all of these these original songs but they're bad originals. They're like it kind of reminds me of like the early R.E.M., like proto R.E.M. in 1980 where like they played a bunch of like songs that they would immediately throw away once they figured <laughs> out how to write better music. Um and and none, none of this works. Um and
2: so, yeah, you know, I think if you if you listen to um cuz Bruce's autobiography uh had had the disc of, of some uh some music to go with it and and first of all the the small selection of early Bruce that is on even an official Bruce release gives you an idea of what he thinks of the music. I, I, I think Steel Mill is really, you know, if you're like a Bruce fan, it's worth listening to as a kind of archaeological thing. Right. Um, because it's fascinating that he he was in this kind of cream style power trio. It was like Mountain, more like to me. Yeah, you know? Mountain or Cream. <laughs> and, 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 and I think he says that he was very influenced by Mountain. And it, it's not that it's bad, but it's just not. It's nowhere on the same level and it's I, I don't think any there's anybody really out there who like has a hankering to listen to some steel mill once they've once they've checked it out just for curiosity.
1: Yeah, I mean, and then he, he, he actually, some of these early band names were pretty funny. I think he was in another one called the Dr. Zoom and the Sonic Boom, which I actually, you know, he probably should have kept that one. That it was a that, band that's, that's of
0: even, a Muppets episode, wasn't it?
1: It really does sound like a Muppet <laughs> band name, doesn't it? And then there was, like, the Bruce Springsteen band. But it was all the basic same kind of, like, you know, dense, sort of sludgy, almost rock and roll music. None of the sprightliness that you would sort of come to associate with, you know, we think of his classic early live Springsteen performances. Um but then, what happens is that, you know, first of all, he's not just, you know, playing this, this very sludgy electric band. He's also a fairly gifted uh, acoustic guitar player, and he writes and composes a lot on his acoustic guitars. And what did he do? But he uh, met this guy, guy by the name of Mike Appel. Is it Appel or Apple? I never know. It'll um, be Appel, I think. Appel, Mike Appel. Who's uh, another Jersey guy who who's just wowed by his talent. And says, I want to manage you. I want to be your producer, too. That's always a bad thing. Don't ever let somebody be (laughs) both your manager and your producer. That's the Andrew Luke Oldham thing, and it never works out well. Didn't ultimately work out well in this case, too. But Appel did spend a lot of time hawking his wares around, and what he did is he got Bruce Springsteen to record a ton of demos for him, and he gave them to everybody who would even listen for five seconds, and one person he gave them to was none other than John Hammond Sr., same guy who discovered Bob Dylan for Columbia Records back in the early 60s. It's a pretty impressive pedigree. And Hammond was hugely impressed by him. Brought him into the studio said, play some stuff for me. And so what's the first song that brings, Bruce Springsteen plays for John Hammond. It's a song called If I Was the Priest on piano.
4: If Jesus was a servant I were the priest if my lady there was an and my mom Still, too many outlaws trying to work the same line.
1: That is the moment where Hammond said, like, kind of words that would come to haunt springsteen for a really long time throughout the early part of his career which is like you're the next dylan mm. you're the new bob dylan uh i i i'm just blown away with the the, the the songwriting talent the lyrical talent the creativity the word play and you're going to be the new dylan And that kind of brings us to his first album, Greetings from Asbury Park, which was originally going to be primarily just an acoustic guitar and piano-based production. Uh, But Bruce Springsteen, instead of being this big rock and roll star like he was with the Bruce Springsteen band and Stillmill, he's playing a lot of these acoustic instruments in his original take on Greetings from Asbury Park. And I think most of us are agreed that it isn't terribly successful. Anybody. We're not talking about the, the band stuff, which he would do later when he Hmm. went back to re-record it. I'm just talking about those early acoustic songs. What do you guys think of acoustic Bruce? Dan, I know you're a huge fan of this era.
2: Yeah. I'm, 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 we're, we're being a little harsh here. Yeah. I, 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 my, my two, two of my overarching takes on Bruce are number one, I can't stand the like slow mopey Bruce. Um, And I there's a lot of good acoustic Bruce, but almost in every case that there's acoustic Bruce, it's better electric. It's better with the band. Um, So in that sense, uh, you know, I think he's he's doing some rough drafts here. that are interesting, but but mostly only they're interesting because they become better songs. And I know one of the one of the big sweeping acoustic epics that he cuts from this album at the last minute, uh, a song called Visitation at Fort Horn. And it's. um, Again, you know, you might want to go back and listen to it to find out what this sounds like, but it's, uh, it, the album was much better off without it.
1: <laughs> I like that song. I have to say, I, okay, I'll, I'll confess. Uh, this, ironically enough, the acoustic numbers that made it onto this record are terrible. I hate the Angel, and I've never liked Mary Queen of Arkansas. In fact, for a long time, I considered Mary Queen of Arkansas to be the worst Bruce Springsteen song of all time.
0: Uh,
3: (laughs)
1: uh, And then I started listening to some stuff on his more recent albums, and I say, well, okay, that's been passed up. But There's like a lot of slow, mopey Bruce songs that were recorded for this record that I think are actually really great. Jazz musician, which is him at the piano, I like that. I like the lady and the doctor. There's this goofy song called Cowboys of the Sea, and I swear to God that the cowboys he's referring to are actually like uh, sperm whales that those are the cowboys of the sea, that he's actually writing a song about whales. Uh, but, you know, how can you admit that outright? And then there's things like Two Hearts and True Waltz Time. That's a very fast, peppy acoustic song.
4: Oh, she breaks with the dawn and by morning she's gone Leaving nothing but another night She returns to her home like a dog returns for a ball Another unsatisfied wife In his little booth secure from the truth he wants her more and he's got the guts to say but as she needs to be real, he needs to conceal the realness of his place. So he sings a little song, and in a chiffon sarong, she performs the black ballet in space. But she's just another flop with a fancy name. He's just another cop with a
1: pretty face. All this stuff got cut from the record. Because at the last second, he kind of realized that, wait a second, this is is not a great way to launch a career. This is slow, mopey, boring music. I think I'm going to record some more band tracks. And that's where we get, I guess, the real beginning of what people think of when they think of Bruce. They think of growing up. They think of it's hard to be a saint in the city. They think of For You. They think especially of the last two songs that were recorded for this album, which are Spirit in the Night and Blinded by the Light. What do you guys think of? I guess the real greetings from Asbury Park, Scott. Well,
0: listening to this, um, actually, you know, listening to this for the first time, my my initial reaction is, wow, that's where Manford Man got all his material. I, I right. knew that. Yeah, I knew... right. He
1: did. He not only did Blind Up the Light," but he also did "Spirit in the Night." Right.
0: And for you. Uh, he he did, didn't know that one. Yeah, he did three. So I'm listening to this, and I knew that Manfred Mann, or "The Blinded by the Light, was a Springsteen track, the only Springsteen pen track ever to make it to number one of the charts, if I'm not mistaken. By and, the way,
1: David Bowie also did two songs from this album. He did Growing Up, and It's Hard to Be a Saint in the City. Ah. So like like everybody's everybody's stolen the songs from this album.
0: <laughs> and then Manfred Mann did For You, which uh, I, I think uh, their version is also very good, and Spirit in the Night as well. So that's my first reaction. Oh, that's where Manfred Mann is. source material. Um, This is an interesting listen. The the Dylan influence is really heavy and I would say overbearing in a a couple of places, Uh, like the Does This Bus Stop on 82nd Street and a little bit on It's Hard to Be a Saint in the City. But, you know, the touchstone for the music on this album is not, you know, directly what you might expect for an artist in 72 meaning it's it's I don't think you draw a line like directly from the Beatles to this you do, not from the Rolling Stones or the Who or the Kinks it's it's definitely Dylan uh it's definitely Van Morrison and so it's a different sort of uh feel different sort of sound it's it's um it's rooted in more of like a folky jazz and and definitely soul which I think will creep more and more into uh his work in in the future, but that that's where a lot of these songs are originating from. And I, if I read correctly, it was Clive Davis, the famous record executive, who convinced Springsteen to put a few more band tracks on this album, which is where "Spirit in the Night" and, and "Blinded by the Light" uh, sort of come from. Those those last additions to the album. Uh, it, it's a fun listen. It's a it's a good listen. I I, I think of of these uh, what five albums we're going to talk about today. This is my least favorite probably by, by by a little bit but it doesn't mean there's not good stuff I, Growing Up might be my favorite song uh, from this album uh, it's got the tightest structure really nice rollicking bass line to it
4: well I stood stone like at midnight suspended in my masquerade and I combed my hair that was just right and commanded the night brigade I was open to find
0: Uh, that, that's one that uh, that I like an awful lot. Uh, blended by the Light. I, I think Manfred Mann may have gotten the better of that. I mean, he did no, take it to number
1: no. one. No, oh, no, Heresy, heresy. I,
0: I, I, I think that Manfred Mann identified the ridiculousness Manfred in the Manfred Mann puts
1: chopsticks into that Yes, song yes. And
0: kind of like. like a spacey sci-fi guitar to it. I, uh, <sighs> You know, Bringing the lyrics to the forefront and really highlighting the, I mean, the, the rhyming dictionary quality of the lyrics of Blinded by the Light, I think works in Manfred Band's favor. I, I think his version, or Springsteen's version of For You is very good, uh, a song that I've known for a long time but not heard Springsteen's version. And, and the one last thing, you know, Spirit in the Night is a good song, and we'll talk more about this to come, but you could never listen to the studio version, the album version of Spirit in the Night Again once you've heard how that sounds live. There's no comparison whatsoever to how good that, that song sounds in a, in a live setting, and that would be the case with some of these early songs.
4: Wow, Billy a crazy cat And he slipped some dust out of his Cool Skat Cow Could I trust some of this It'll show you where you at At least it'll help you really feel it Said I She said, "Honey, let me heal it." start We danced all night to a song.
0: very decent debut again i think a little too dylan in some places uh but some highlights
2: yeah this is this is i mean this is a strong debut album um and if you look at it from that perspective uh it's definitely a good album i mean i share jeff's contempt for the angel and mary queen of arkansas those are both just awful songs um but you know you not every not every debut album is going to be hitting on every uh, track. I, I, and I agree with Scott. I mean, look, every one of these songs with the possible exception of Blinded by the Light, um, which I'll get to in a minute, but every one of these songs is going to sound better live. Uh, some of them get, you know, one of the amazing things about Bruce is the way that these songs get reinvented and reinvented over and over again. And also the way they grow. I mean, growing up is such a, it's a such a, you know, barely out of your teen year song. And Bruce is like 22, 23 mm-hmm. when he writes it um and if you listen to him perform it in the mid 70s and you listen to him perform it on uh you know on, on like the live in dublin where he does it with the Seeger session fan you listen to it even in springsteen on broadway where he's doing it very much as an old man um the song holds up perfectly well at all these different stages of bruce's life mm-hmm. where he's just able to perform it differently but but the lyrical structure of it you know even as young as he is, he's not writing the kind of songs that you're going to be embarrassed to sing when you're 40.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, I, 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 agree with Scott. I think Lanford Mann's version of blinded by the light is a lot of fun. Uh, and I frankly, I think I heard it probably a good number of times before I heard Bruce's. Um, I think the student, but you know, Bruce, obviously he, it, this is, that's the most, that and 82nd street are the most seriously Dylan-esque songs here. You can't shake the Dylan. um, Uh, influence all that off that i actually really like the live version on live in dublin of blinded by the light which is totally reimagined um lost in the flood is one that i think doesn't work all that well on the album but some of the later if you listen to some of the later kind of real hard rock versions of it that that are on on like live in new york city um and and certainly spirit in the night is one that was an absolute live standard and that really does point the way forward to where Bruce is going
1: I think one of the interesting things about Springsteen's entire like album canon is that none of these songs have died all right None of them, not a single one from every album. I guess that's you know probably a function of having a, a performing career that that's lasted like what well over 50 years or something like that, nearly 50 years at this point. Uh, so like for the longest time, he wasn't playing any songs from Greetings from Asbury Park Live. And then somewhere around like 2009, he said like Screw it, I'm gonna play the entire album. I'm gonna play all of them again. He even whipped out the Angel and just played it for a laugh because you know I was like, Hey, might as well. Uh, so it's really fun to see how these things constantly get reinvented. But what I hear when I listen to the original. Album is what, what absolutely overwhelms me about it, and one of the reasons why I really enjoy this record, despite those two flawed, you know, acoustic songs, is the energy, the youthful energy, and, and the sort of uh, this the absolutely fearless rhyming dictionary approach. You know, you get exactly why people was like, oh, here's the new Dylan, right? And you can also get why he shrank from that, you know, in the next couple of years because it, it was sort of, you know, it was a millstone around his neck. But when I listen to, to the joy of, you know, the way springsteen with with the rowdy band of you know friends and ruffians that he has playing with him comes out of the the middle eight on blinded by the light where he's like some hazards from harvard were skunked on beer playing backyard bomb but dear scotland yard was trying hard they sent some dude with a calling card said do what you like but don't do it here so i jumped up turned around spit in the air fell on the ground i mean just clem bam 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 he's very young. This is his debut album, this is the first song on it, but he's already got a mastery of meter and he's already got a, like, just uh he's able to summon a sort of reckless, youthful abandon that was unlike anything else that was being done. Everybody always, in, in the second album, it's going to become even much, that much more obvious. Everybody compared it to Van Morrison, but Van Morrison wasn't writing this kind of music. Van Morrison was a much more, I guess, I suppose a serious-minded, man, you know, very dark and dense and brooding, you know, a little, you know. A, you know, midget tyrant who would always stalk around the <laughs> stage, you know, five foot one chain smoking cigarettes and yelling at his band. This is, you know, this is you know a bunch of kids just gaggling out of a car and playing on a street corner and having fun. Oh,
3: from backyard
4: if this hard. They some dude with a said, do what you like, but don't do it. I was going to teach those boys to too soon. And some kid in that handicap was complaining That he caught the clap from some mouse trap he bought last night Well I snapped the skullcap between his ears I saw a gap
1: it's kind of what the east street shuffle is, is about if you if you listen to the second album and also i uh, you know the, the other lyrics on this album that will jump out at you or stuff like from growing up you know where is is maybe like the single uh most scene setting and iconic bruce springsteen lyric of all time comes from growing up where he says i swear i found the key to the universe in the engine of an old parked car i mean doesn't that explain most of the rest of his music, from born to run to racing in the street to like half the songs on, uh, on the river? Uh, it, that's, it's basically a skeleton key for his entire lyrical approach right in that one song.
4: Took month-long vacations in the stratosphere And you know it's really hard to hold your breath I Swear I lost everything I ever loved to fear Was the cosmic kid in full costume dress But my team, finally took root in the earth But well, it got me a nice little place somewhere in the stars Well, I swear I found the key to the universe
1: The other one I guess I really want to single out is for you, the the nervous... Sort of young uh, adolescent energy of that uh, is is striking, and I don't think it was ever performed better than it was on the original album. People like to sort of down on the early version of the East Street Band. They say, "Oh, Vini Lopez, he didn't really have a great sense of rhythm. He played sloppy drums, and you know, the drums are kind of sloppy." Mighty Max uh, has a much better sense of strict time than Vini Lopez did. But I like that 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 shuffling gait and the way that the, the band attacks a song like "For You," which is almost entirely piano driven. I don't even know if there's a guitar on that song, but you've got that great climax at the end where it's like, you know, you know, so you'll have to find a better reason than the one we were living for. And it's not that nursery mouth that I came back for Mm -hmm. because I've broken all your windows and I've rammed through all your doors. And who am I to ask you to lick my sores? That is drama. And for a guy this young on his first time out to be able to summon that level of drama In these songs, despite the failures of some of the other experiments on this record, it's hugely impressive. And you understand why critics were all agog at him, even though some of them were a little bit jaded. They're like, oh, he just sounds like Van Morrison. But no, you can understand why there was a lot of critical noise about this guy right out of the right out of the gates. And you can also understand why it wasn't ever gonna really make the top 40. We were
4: both itch tigers. Just had your ears tuned to the roar of some metal-tempered engine on an alien distant shore. So you left to find a better reason than the one we were living for. And it's not that nursery mouth I came back for. And it's not the way you're stretched out on the floor. Cause I've broken all your windows and I've ran through all your doors. And who am I to ask you to lick my sword? And you should know. came for you, for you, I came for you. Life was one long emergency and your cloud liners you won my electric
1: In fact, none of Bruce's work, not even Born to Run, was actually that commercially successful. It took him a long time to make it, which is, I guess, kind of the story of the next two albums.
0: The Wild, The Innocent, and The "East Street Shuffle is the uh, next album. Uh, it was released, what, the same year, I think. So f- hey, or- at
1: first and last time you'll ever accuse Bruce Springsteen of rushing
0: it, right? right. <laughs> it was uh, recorded in the summer of 73, out in November of 73. Of and look, there's a... There's a large jump uh, from uh, the first album to the second album. I know, uh, Jeff adores this album with, with very good reason. Uh, one of the things that I, I take away, this actually may have been well, it was the second. That the first uh, album I, I got from Bruce Springsteen um, was the live seventy-five, eighty-five from my from my library. But I did request uh, the Wild, the Innocent, and the E Street Shuffle at one point because I, I wanted to dub uh, Rosalita onto one of my cassettes, you know, from a CD because that is a song that I had known and liked an awful lot. But I, I didn't listen to the rest of the album. I just grabbed it for the one song. So again, now going back and listening when. These bands that I love that uh, have the Bruce Springsteen influenced uh, description, the, the moniker thrown at them. This is the album that largely they're talking about. I'm, I'm realizing now uh, a band like uh, Marth from uh, out of Philadelphia who I, who I really love. Uh, you know they were telling their stories of Philadelphia in the way that Springsteen was telling his stories of the Jersey Shore. On um, the Wild, the Innocent, and the East Street Shuffle, painting these these pictures, uh, naming these characters. Uh, that's what they were doing. Uh, another band like The Hold Steady, uh, who has this this batch of characters and locations, uh, largely around Minneapolis. Uh, this is this is the kind of album, the kind of Bruce album, that they're emulating or at least influenced by. And and, and so I, I see that here. So many of these songs here have the very cinematic structure. Uh, uh, again. Painting a picture, describing the scene, trying to take you right on the the boardwalk of the, of the Jersey Shore, and and name dropping these characters in different places. And the thing about the Wild the Innocent and the East Street Shuffle, uh, if you're new to it, is is its length, and not the length of the album, but the length of the songs. There's seven songs, and I don't think any of them are less than five minutes. There are a few that are past eight or nine minutes, but no, this is not this is not jamming or you know freeform noodling. Um, one of the real strengths uh I think of Springsteen that shows on the album is how how carefully constructed these multi part you know epic type songs are um they're they're just really well thought out and and put together i mean a song like uh,
1: it's progressive rock, if yeah, you think about especially, it. Like, I mean, it's not like, it's, when you think well, of progressive rock, you think of Yes and Genesis. Right. But but these structures are progressive. I mean, it's, it's, it's very much like long suites assembled in different pieces, recapitulations and things like that. Yeah, yeah it's, it, it could be part of the genre.
0: The, the first time I heard Kitty's Back, I thought, well, yes, this is exactly why Jeff loves this Bruce Springsteen era so much, because it reminded me of just a terrible, terribly lot of progressive rock. Uh, Not, not, not in a bad way in any way, but just, oh, uh, you know, yeah, this... This sort of reminds me of things that, that Jeff would like. Um, I mean, it's all like Rosalita, which, uh, which again, is one of those songs. It might be the Bruce Springsteen song I've heard more often than, than all others. But, how, how, you know, how do you describe that song to someone who's never heard it before? I mean, it's slow, and it's fast, and there's verses all over the place. And a how course do we even
1: excerpt it? I'm just, like, right. sparing, like, wait, 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 there's, like, six different parts
0: Yeah, <laughs> there's, a, there's a couple of false endings, and there's a sax solo, and this great coda on the back end, uh, uh, I mean, but, but all of it is put together in such a way to, to maintain that momentum from start to finish and still have this story told of a, a you know, girlfriend's parents who going to prove of Bruce Springsteen's rock and roll lifestyle. I
4: know your mama, she don't like me, cause I play in a rock and roll.
0: like the E Street shuffle, that, that cacophony of horns that, that kicks it off, very funky, that chicken-scratch guitar. Um, uh, I don't want to get too deep into some of these tracks because there's only seven, and I know you guys have thoughts. Um, but like, um, Incident on 57th Street um, is is one of those songs here that I, I really like. It has a full slate of characters, a, a definite setting, uh, just a beautiful arrangement uh, with piano an organ, the chorus just sort of floats on top of of the music. Uh this beautiful piano solo to close things up. Um and, 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 and well, anthemic is a is a phrase I think that will or a word that will keep coming up at our Bruce Springsteen descriptions and and, and discussions, but certainly uh, you know, the chorus, very anthemic on incident on 57th Street. Um, you can see him reaching for these things that he's trying to. Pieced together in the way he writes it, sort arranges of and puts things together, and gets it very right on this album.
1: I'll let Dan go, you know, in depth uh, first, but I just want to start by saying that yes, this is by far to me. Bruce Springsteen's greatest album, his greatest achievement. I consider it perfect. And there's the one song on it that people often will criticize, which is Wild Billy Circus Story. Uh, and the reason they criticize it is it sounds completely alien to everything else on this album. Everything else on this album is like sort of like a funky urban prog rock kind of a vibe. And then there's like Wild Billy Circus Story with the oom-pa, oom-pa accordions and tubas. And it just seems like, what's going on with this? And it, it, you know about Springsteen's career in makes sense because it actually comes from the greetings from asbury Park's era and uh, <clears throat> i believe they actually recorded a version of it for those sessions uh, and so they redid it here he loved to play it he played it live all the time in concert during 1973 and 1974 i like it too it just doesn't belong here given how many great unreleased songs came from this era but the thing i want to praise about this before i let dan talk about some of the songs is the band this is where the e street band really becomes the e street band Uh, this is where they start touring all right they didn't really tour greetings from asbury park was already recorded in october of 1972 before the band had ever really come together as a permanent proposition a touring proposition it was with the wild the innocent the e street shuffle that he first started playing almost all these songs before he recorded them and so you have i think the the biggest thing that matters here is the addition of David Sanctus who was Bruce Springsteen's original pianist. Uh, he would later be replaced by Roy Bitton. Um, who, of course, has kind of gone on to be famous, like the E Street Band piano player. But David Stanksius was in this early phase, and what he is just marvelous at is not only a classical touch, which he brings to something, a jazzy and classical touch, which he brings to, like, New York City Serenade, but the funk. This man can play an electric piano like nobody's business, and there's no better example than on Kitty's Back. Scott, you're right. I adore Kitty's Back. I knew it. I, lo- I, knew it. I, lo- I, lo- I love that instrumental breakdown where all of a sudden Sanks just starts playing the And then it go kicks right back into that real descending chorus. you're done listening to that all of a sudden bruce is singing go here she comes here she comes the whole band you just imagine these hooligans saying here she comes and then bruce kicks in It's it's everything you would ever want this band to be. It is actually – it's funny because everyone talks about the second half of this re- this record, which is perfect in my opinion. But man, the joy of what the live E Street band experience must have been like to see in person, you hear it on Kitty's Back. Now, Dan, please take the reins.
2: Yeah, Kitty's Back has almost kind of a busking vibe in that sense. Like, But it's, I, I have to say, I, I consider this album kind of disappointing. Um, mostly because, mostly because I think a lot of these songs really do fare a lot better live. Uh, the conspicuous exception of that is E Street Shuffle, which on the record is just fantastic. And they, they tried some experiments with it live later on that, that don't work quite as well as, as how tight it is. And it is really tight on the record. Um, Wild Billy Circus Story, I totally get why the music of that is, is circus. Um, but that song does not work for me at all. Um, (laughs) uh you know i think uh i mean there there absolutely are some classics on here rosalita of course uh, grows even further rosalita is the song i know people talk about jungle land but rosalita to me is always that's clarence's song right more than anything else because they just he just kind of takes that over um but the whole coda where it sort of you know it kicks into another gear. Your
1: papa says he knows that I don't have any money. (laughs) The whole, again, the gang on the street just starts singing Mm -hmm. a mass chorus.
2: Yeah, and 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 you know my tires are slashed and I almost crashed, but the Lord had mercy. I you mean, know, he just kind of drives that. It, it well, really is It's your you know you're burning rubber up the Palisades Parkway. That very uh, next
0: that very next line is the one that's that always sticks with me as just a, a fine form of Springsteen songwriting. You know, my, the, uh, my machine she's a dud stuck in the mud somewhere in the swamps of Jersey. That's a great Springsteen line.
1: Well, I mean, how about Tell him this is his last chance to get his daughter in a fine romance. <laughs> because the record company, Rosie, just gave me a big advance. And the irony, the irony, of course, is that he was actually like already on the outs with Columbia <laughs> Records at that point because his first album had flopped and like they weren't even bothering to promote this book. So there's a little bit of hype there as well. Check the
2: Bruce is, I mean,
0: Bruce is
2: certainly uh, always one of his own best promoters uh, in that sense. I mean, look, I think the, the songs here, a lot of these songs grow tremendously on the road. Kitty's Back is, is particularly in the early years, a staple of the, it, it's jam band song, right? I mean, there are versions of that that run 15, 17 minutes. i a 23-minute version of that one. Yeah, <laughs> it goes forever. Yeah, and it's, uh, and, and they're all, they're all wonderful, Um You know, I think uh, Fourth of July, Asbury Park, Sandy, I just I do not like the the album version of this at all. I think it 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 just there's a kind of epic scope that Bruce brings. to. I mean, it's a beautifully written song, a tremendous, uh, you know, evocative melody. But I think Bruce brings a lot more to it on stage. Uh, than he does in the studio incident on Fifty Seven. different opinions on political
1: beats i could yeah, think- disagree more with what you just said but anyways continue i'm sorry we're i'll get back to it when i talk
2: yeah an incident on 57th street i think actually my favorite live version of that there are some wonderful early ones there's there's i think i found it on on like a japanese bonus cd to the the box set but it's, it's from the nassau coliseum uh one of the national coliseum shows in december of 1980 yes it's just, yes, uh, yes that song is so it's it's west side story i mean let's face it, it's west side story written as a rock rock and roll song mean he changes the, the story a little bit but
1: not so that's funny, funny because actually i think jungle land is also west side story as a rock and roll song this is a theme he would constantly go back to so yeah
2: yeah but at least there he moved it across the river i mean <laughs> it's, it's a little it's a little different um but uh yeah, no, I mean, both of those songs are, are just tremendous live epics. And I think New York City Serenade, I, I don't love it. Um, it, it, is, it is a song, though, that also kind of grows live when he, when he can bring a more, I don't know, orchestral feel to it, maybe.
1: Well, I I love the fact that we actually have strongly differing opinions about this, because I I will then be able to drop clips in to demonstrate why I'm correct and you're wrong. (laughs) Uh, I think Sandy is a song, a classic example of a song that, that got a lot worse in live performance. I really have, it's always, like, I have as you might have guessed, listeners, I have like about a hundred different Springsteen concert bootlegs, and this is a skip track for me. Almost every single one of them, I feel like it gets plodding. I feel like it gets again. There's this sort of oomp ah oomp ah plod to the chorus when it's played live, but on this. On this version, there's all these beautiful little guitar filigrees, stuff that's probably only possible in the studio, where in the stereo, you hear like the guitar you know, chord goes, Don't, 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 do don. The way the guitar filigrees wind their way in and out of the, the lyric. And it's a much softer, more acoustic based kind of a, a, an approach than it is with the full, you know big accordion you know oompa tuba kind of a thing danny Federisi kind of getting all into his uh his uh, hurly girly man kind of a shtick which he he loved to do with springsteen during the 70s uh i really really prefer the album version of that
4: sandy that waitress i was seeing lost her desire for me I spoke with her last night. She said she won't set herself on fire for me anymore. She worked that joint under the boardwalk. She was always a girl you saw bopping down the beach with the radio. The kids say last night she was dressed like a star in one of them cheap little seaside bars, and I saw a with lover boy out on the Kokomo you hear the cops finally busted madame marie for telling fortunes better than they do for me this boardwalk life's through babe you ought to quit this scene too
1: I guess the other one is Incident on 57th Street. Now, the thing about this is that it became two different songs. If you hear the early 70s versions of it, where it's just Bruce singing to, in a piano, and it's either David Sanchez or Roy Bitten, are just playing the piano accompaniment, and then it's Bruce, there's a solo spotlight. You know, raining down on him on stage, and he's alone at the microphone and he's singing about Spanish Johnny and Puerto Rican Janie. And it's mesmerizing, but that's not the full band version. The full band version on this album is something that has always stunned me. And it was the moment that I heard this song that I realized that Springsteen was more than just the greatest hits artist that I, you know, I had heard from my dad, you know, watching MTV and seeing Dancing in the Dark and Born in the USA. Hearing Incident on Fifty Seventh Street, those opening piano chords that sound like, the, you know, it's the coldest night, uh, and also the hottest night of the year simultaneously, and then that great chorus where he goes, Puerto Rico. By the way, I've always thought Puerto Rican Janie, girl, won't you tell me your name? Uh, well, her name is Puerto Rican Janie. You seem to already know that, <laughs> don't you? I mean that you know, that's Jenny sleeps and sheet stamp with sweat. I mean, that's her name, right? So uh, whatever. You know, this is the kind of I love I love goofing on like lyrical nitpicks. Yeah,
2: but yeah, her, her her name is probably Mary.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bruce Bruce has a stable of names that he likes to go back to. There's the Marys, there's the Wendy's, there's the Janie's. Uh you know, you, you can't accuse him of, of getting too exotic with the naming conventions but that chorus is just so wonderful the big shining organ from federici and then again that mass chorus. their drummer vini lopez the guy who can't keep great time he's the guy who sings the high parts the the beautiful what sounds like a female's voice that soprano falsetto vocal you know good night it's all right Janie that's a guy singing that and if you hear him doing it live it's actually just stunning to realize wait a second and that that's coming from their drummer <laughs> yeah it is. I just think this album is, is great. And it, there are so many reasons that it's my favorite Springsteen album. I think that first of all, because it has a sort of progressive feel that it is very much like a Van Morrison goes to New Jersey sign of kind of a thing. Uh, it feels like Springsteen had been listening to a lot of like St. Dominic's preview. Uh, you know, you listen to the lion in particular, seems like, you know, New York city serenade was deeply inspired by that song or, you know, almost independence day. Um, but the other reason is that this is, in a weird way, his most unmediated album of all time. It didn't have the weird, like, stop-start genesis of "Greetings from Asbury Park," where he recorded one version of the album and then, at the last second, he cut a bunch of songs and he redid it. And it certainly had nothing like, you know, the, the horrible. And this is the new theme of Springsteen as we move on to the rest of this decade and the rest of his career, for that matter, where he just spends endless amounts of time slaving away to get the perfect number of songs, the perfect. You know, production, the perfect theme, the perfect winnowing of his lyrical conceits. Mm. This one just felt like a spontaneous evolution. Just boom. Here's a bunch of great fun music. Which is why it's actually funny that there's so many great outtakes from this album. This album has stuff like Zero and Blind Terry. Which is a song that I think should have been included on the album. Which is, you know, again, another one of these sort of shaggy dog stories about, like, you know, gang wars, another you know, West Side story thing. The skulls met the pythons, and here are these two lovers, Zero and Blind Terry. They run away, but Zero, or does it Terry's dad, you know, sent some troopers to go bring her back? Because Zero, of course, he's, you know, a bad egg. It's that kind of thing. You know, you, you, you don't want to take it too seriously.
4: And uh, now some folks say Zero and Terry got away. Others said they were caught and brought back. But still I'm young pilgrims to this day. Go to that spot way down by the railroad track. Where the chores
3: the Well, time
4: is sky on a hot August night. If you look hard enough, if you try. Your kids, zero and Terry, and all the bitches. We'll just hike in the streets up in the sky. we Who just walk and just hike in the streets up in the sky? Just hike in the streets up in the sky. In the streets in the sky. Just hike in the streets in the sky. We'll just hike in the streets.
1: But the romance is beautiful. The vocals are beautiful. The the, the wonderful organ playing is beautiful on it. There's songs like that, and then there's like seaside bar song, seaside bar song, which I know Dan doesn't like, but Dan is wrong. That I do like it. no, no, no. I love no, I love seaside bar song. Well, then, okay. Well, why were you giving me stick about it when we were <laughs> talking about it via email? What is your what is your, your argument, that That doesn't belong on an album like this?
2: No, I think I think seaside bar song belonged on Born to Run. I think it sounds much more like Born to Run. I think it would have sounded out of place on this album. Uh, but no, a Seaside Bar song is, is glorious if it, it, it would sound perfectly If you stuck it between Born to Run and Night Or something it, 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 it's, it's that kind of song, it's looser But it's, it's, it's very much in that Kind of anthemic guitar chord sound that, that Born to Run has The highway
4: is alive tonight So baby do not be frightened There's something about a pretty girl On a sweet summer night That gives this boy to express The radio man finally understands And plays you leave back is the car, by your girl.
1: I mean, so, like, this is the thing I want to say to people who enjoy this album and say, like, well, well, why isn't there more Bruce Springsteen music like this? Well, there is actually more Bruce Springsteen music out there like this. It's just not on any of his albums, with the exception, I'd say, of Jungle Land and maybe Backstreets. Those from from the next album, those still have, like, a trace of this sort of epic Prague era semi semi-prog-era Springsteen. But you can find that music on, uh, you know, boxed sets, like tracks. Where you have like Santa Ana, Seaside Bar Song, Bishop Dan Zero, and Blind Terry, and Thundercrack, which is his big stage closing number all throughout this year when he was recording Wildly Innocent um, or you can go like uh, you know listen to like live bootlegs from 73 and 74 there's a, a, a song that I just want to mention briefly because I think it really is kind of a key transition piece something that he was playing during this year called Tokyo and the band played it was originally called Tokyo and then it sort of began to mutate you know I have performances of it dating from different eras and it kind of grew and it grew and it grew each time it was played by the end of it in like mid-74 it was called and the band played and it's just one of these great again woolly kind of progressive like you know things where like all these different bits and bots are strung together and it just tells a story of you know bored people hanging around a new jersey gas station on a (laughs) summer night And it works beautifully you know they're just listening to the radio and like you know making fun of themselves and you know like you know interacting with the customers and dreaming and that's what Bruce Springsteen's entire kind of persona was about was selling the romance of the quotidian and making it into something magical. I really love that song and i just I just love this era of Springsteen so much and there's something that's gonna be sacrificed immensely when we get into the, the next album, which of course is the beginning of Big Bruce, Bruce Springsteen that basically everybody already knows. Whoa
4: and them cats are showed, getting back down in the chain yard. And the sand where the union says "Oh, Bring out the dice, I'm go It's lunchtime well oh, baby, it's lunchtime at night Oh, stage mama said George Raff's tonight on the late show They said it's If not, didn't be lost in the past And we all sighed with the sunrise And we watch the credits pass Yes, and the morning cloak fell down like a hoax over sleepy time.
2: First of all, you know, I think one of the, the kind of great inside jokes to, um, you know, in, in, in rock is the fact that I think Zero and Blind Terry is probably, as much as anything, um, the song that Bob Dylan is, is building his first parody around when he gets around to doing Tweeter and, and the Monkey Man. man. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, which which is which is itself pretty funny because it's it's Dylan, you know, Dylan doing essentially a parody of an unreleased bootleg like, like track that that you know three quarters of the audience hasn't heard. Um The Fever is another one from yeah. this this era that is just uh and, and, and the, the there's a there's an official release of that on eighteen tracks, uh which is uh which is wonderful. And it's you know, I mean the this outside Johnny version's really good. It's the first of of many songs that Bruce gives away that are, that are well handled by other people. I think he also Um, gave it to the Pointer sisters too, right? Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. I think he may have, but uh, I'm admittedly more familiar with the Southside Johnny version, but, but the Bruce version is the best version of that. I mean, it's, it it really is. It it just has this kind of uh, intensity. Mm. Um, And, you know, I think people, people listen for that in like a song, like I'm on fire that you get later on. And I, I don't think it does it as well as the fever does kind of
0: the same concept. I just to yes, the fever is one people should hear this leisurely paced uh, song that slowly gains momentum. The guy goes home, turns on the TV, can't concentrate. He's got the fever uh, for his girl and then you've got the band uh, on the backing vocals you know he's got the fever oh he's got the fever uh, Clarence Clemens has a, a, just a sultry sax solo uh, and also he gets that
1: one real great line where he's like he's got yes. the fever for a girl you know that big basso profundo that he sings in I love that
0: part. that's definitely one people should check out
4: because so bad at night I got the fever for the girl He's got the
2: thing by the way that you see, one of the one of the things you see a lot, and, and I think we'll probably talk about this in a bit with some of the Born to Run songs, too, is that you know Bruce Bruce has this kind of modular thing where he takes pieces of lyrics and pieces of music, and if he doesn't release the song, yes. he'll he'll scavenge them for mm-hmm. later on. All I over think, the well, place. Yeah, and one of the really interesting ones of that actually is in Seaside Bar song, where he has the line about the highway is alive tonight, and it's it's so full of like Promise and and youthful energy. He's, the highway is alive tonight. So baby, do not be frightened. And he reuses that line in Tom Joad in the nineties, and it's totally totally different. It's, it's the highway is alive tonight. And nobody's kidding nobody about where it goes. <laughs> and it, it's, it's such a he's such a flip of that.
1: He does that actually on the next album too. And and this is I guess what we have to come to for those who aren't aware. The next album is a little album you may have heard of. It's called Born to Run, but the genesis of Born to Run is kind of one of the most famously uh, tortured stories in all of rock music. You know, he'd started uh, Born to Run, the actual song itself had already been recorded and mixed, done by mid 1974. So, like, you know, maybe just a couple of months after Wild the Innocent had actually even been released, they were still touring it. And he'd already had that one. He'd written so many of the other songs. He had Jungle Land down in an early form, he had She's the One. He had, uh, you know, early versions of Thunder Road pottering around in his demo bin. Mm -hmm. Uh, He could not find a way to record this album to his satisfaction he wasn't happy at all with the sound the production sound that he was getting out of 914 studios uh, he wasn't happy with the production that his manager Mike Pell, was giving him he wasn't happy with his own ability to refine his conceits there's if you hear there's like early versions of Jungle land from like July of 74 out there uh, and they're like 15 minute long there's like a little jazzy breakdown in the middle there's a lot of repeated words verses you know it's an interesting thing to listen to but it doesn't work it doesn't work anything like the final version does and he just didn't seem to be able to to bring it in for a landing he he had already failed his first two albums and the record company was basically going to dump him after this all right he had one more chance to do it and then columbia was just going to you know cash in their chips and say all right well whatever you know this this new dylan thing it didn't pay off we should probably stop investing in people who call themselves the new dylan um So he had to get it right and he was driven by it. He was like, This is too good. I, 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 you know, this band is too good. We have too much talent. I don't want this to be wasted. So he drove himself insane trying to make sure that the album that he would release would be perfect. And in fact, you know, this would be the theme. He'd drive himself insane doing this on Darkness on the Edge of Town, doing it on the river, doing it on Born in the USA. Um, and eventually, what he did is he brought in outside help a music critic by the name of John Landau. He is. Either to your estimation, and this is—I'd be interested in hearing Dan's opinion on this—he's either a hero of this story or he's a villain of this story, because there are a lot of people, and I might even count myself among them, who say that what John Landau's ultimate influence on Bruce Springsteen uh, was not the best in terms of what I appreciated about Springsteen. But what Landau did is he saw him famously at uh, it was Harvard, it was in Cambridge, and, and Springsteen was playing in like May of '74, and he just gave you know one of those. Classic, typical 1974-era, blow-the-doors-off performances. And Landau wrote some of the most famous words of all rock criticism. He said, I have seen the future of rock and roll music, and its name is Bruce Springsteen. And then what do you do after you write something like that, promoting an artist? You immediately become their producer and manager. (laughs) Which is what Landau did. And it wasn't like he was trying to promote himself into that role, to be fair. Springsteen came to him and asked him for help because Born to Run as an album wasn't coming together. And what they finally did, in fact, everything that actually made it onto the album except the title track was really not only re- not fully recorded until, I don't know, probably March or April of 1975. But the final result is Born to Run. Some people consider it one of the few truly perfect albums in the history of all rock and roll music. Some people are a little bit tired of it. Some people have hated it with an abiding passion all of their lives. I really don't understand why people feel that way about Born to Run, but I will say this that I guess I'm kind of more in the I've heard I've heard it too much, I've heard it too often that it doesn't thrill me the way it used to with the exception of, you know, kind of some of the more obvious songs. Before I get to those, what are you guys thoughts on the the Big White Whale and the Bruce Springsteen discography?
2: I mean, this is, and and Born to Run itself, I think, he spent months and months just making that song. Um,
1: There are like seven alternate mixes of it, and you can hear like they put singing girls in the background, the big strings, like weird horns, like they tried everything they could conceivably think of.
2: So, yeah, yeah, and it, it's funny because I think Max Weinberg has said that that even to this day he can't play the drums on it exactly the way it is on the on the record, wait, wait, so, which is Max, weird. Max Roy come in after Born to Run and before the rest of the album is put to bed.
0: It's just weird. It's, weird. it's weird because I always think I I, I knew uh, not this week but recently uh, that that it's not Weinberg on the album version. But in my head, I always picture Weinberg like like this is a prototypical Max Weinberg song. The way that this. You know that kick drum just pounds on "Born to Run," and he, he didn't even play on the album version. It's, nope, that's uh, Boom Ernest Carter. Boom Carter, my yeah. friend.
2: Yeah, and and but and Bruce famously said that that you know he wanted this album to be the greatest rock and roll record ever recorded, and whether or not you think he achieved that, I think he got pretty close to the pin. I think that you know your your greatest albums of all time discussion is is always going to have "Born to Run" in the picture, um, but this album sounds like an album that wanted to be the greatest rock and roll record of all time. Like the ambition just oozes off everything on this album. Um, and, 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 you know, and that is, that's something that you don't really hear, I think ever again in Bruce, but, um, but it's just, there's so much, there's so much he feels, it feels like he's trying to say and trying to do musically as well as lyrically. I mean, I think we, you know, we talk a lot about Bruce's, Bruce's lyrics and, and, and I'll get to that in a minute, but, um, you know, it, it, the lyrics and the live performances, as much as those are great things, I think without Bruce's ability as a writer of music, um, you know, that's the foundation it all it all rests on. Um, I mean, born to run, yeah, what else what else can you say about that song? It is that, that great adrenaline shot. It is that that epic guitar tone. Um, you know, Thunder Road, Look, I, I, I don't know that there has ever been a better opening to a song hmm. lyrically. Um, and this is actually one of these songs that I, I kind of, you know, when I was like 14 and really into Born in the U.S., I didn't really get Thunder Road. I was probably like 17 or 18 before it really, really registered with me. But, I mean, just that opening, you know, screen door slams, Mary's dress waves like a vision. She dances across the porch as the radio plays. Just that opening, I mean, in, in so few words, and I think we'll probably talk in a minute about how he got it down to those few words, but, you know, that such a concise sketch that is such an indelible picture. Bruce just gets through that, that opening and you are right there, right? You are right there. You can see, particularly if you grew up in the part of the country that I did in the time period I did, you know, you can see what the porch looks like you can picture you know mary twirling on the on the porch it, it's just <laughs> it grabs you right there and then you know and then bruce backs out right he now he's he's sketched you the picture of her he's sketched you the picture of the house now here's he He's you know he's watching across the street he's got his car running um and and he's right in that space in between he's not the creepy guy who can't have this woman and is looking at her and he's not the guy who has her but he's, he's the young man who knows that he might maybe have this woman. He might maybe be able to get her in his car and get her to go with him. And he, and he you know, it just carries so much of that emotional weight right there uh, in the opening of that song. The
4: screen door slams. Mary's dress waves Like a vision she dances across the porch as the radio plays Roy Orbison singing for the lonely. Hey, that's me, and I want you only. Don't turn me home again. I just can't face myself alone again. Don't run back inside, darling. You know just what I'm here for. So you're scared.
2: Some of the other things on this on this record, um, I mean, Tenth Avenue Freeze Out is one that I think we, um, you know, it's and and this is where he brings in Steve Van Zandt to arrange the horns, uh, and and he, he had been in and out, I think, of the band. Yeah, he, Vincent early. had been a friend
1: of his uh, you know ever since they were like the late 60s the, and he'd actually been in like early Bruce Springsteen bands but this is when he joins the band full time and he and he starts playing with them live and then you have two guitars and that of course changes a lot of the way the E Street Band presents its music and I think no greater you know except no greater example of that than this song
2: yeah, and it's 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 if you know the album version, which is a, still a staple on classic rock radio. If you know like the the later live versions that are on the box set and, and other places, it's a wonderful song. But boy, you have not heard 10th Avenue Freeze Out until you've heard the live versions that they did between about '75 and '78. Uh, it's just got it's got a uh, you know it's a much faster tempo. Uh, the piano and and you know the guitar, particularly at the the start of the uh, song, it really just it, it has this this kind of funky, um, hot tempo to it. It, it. it comes in hot and it keeps you up. Uh, you know, and, and any, I mean, you know, any version of that that you hear from that era is just, it, when I first started hearing those versions, it blew me away. I'd been listening to this song for years and I was just like, wow, this is a completely different song. I mean we could talk about any one of the songs on this uh, uh, but the the other one that that I always identify with one member of the band is backstreets which is very much Danny Federici's song even though the piano drives the melody mm-hmm. it, it's, it's that whole the, the the really epic feel that this song has comes from from the keyboards and the the way the keyboards just soar on this and and you listen to particularly you listen to I mean, the, the studio version gets it, but you listen to the live versions too, again, from the, the mid to late 70s in particular. Uh, and it's just, it, it, it is just almost this anthem chorus of each of these instruments all around you. Uh, and it, it just, you know, it takes this, this really lyrically kind of very small song about these guys just kind of hanging out on the streets, right? And turns it into an epic.
1: I mean, the thing you need to understand about Born to Run, I think, uh, you, the listener, who may not be a Springsteen obsessive, is that this is where the E Street Band takes its final form. All right. This is where David Sanchez leaves the band for a solo career. Um, and, and, uh, Vina Lopez had gotten fired for getting into a fight with Mike Capel's brother on the <laughs> road, and then they got Boom Carter, and he does "Born to Run." But then they get a new guy, uh, Mighty Max, Max Weinberg, who still, I believe, is the house drummer for Conan O'Brien. I believe. I
2: think um, he, he left. He left yeah. that gig after the Tonight Show, for right? A year. But when, just, when they were cutting like some costs.
1: <laughs> See, that, that's what I get for not paying enough attention to TV over the last decade. But, you know, you guys know who Max Weinberg is, all right? He's he's the drummer for the E Street Band. He comes in on this album. And the addition of Roy Bitten in particular mm-hmm. kind of creates the classic, the fusion of Bitten and Federici. Are, is the classic E street band sound. You have like Federici playing those, you know, celests, you know, like the high sort of like glockenspiels, xylophone sounding, you know, notes. And then you have that, that big sheets of sound approach that Roy Bitten brings to everything on you know, backstreets is a classic example of it. <laughs>
4: To the outskirts, time between team, in beach house, in the
3: heat, yeah. but even
1: on Thunder Road. And Thunder Road is a song about which a so much has already been said and so little can really be added to that i'm just gonna have to try to add one more thing which is this uh is that there was so much wonderful poetry that came from this song that springseed actually had to like Eliminate some of it to get it all into one track. There are early versions of this song. That you, there's a great, a very famous live performance that he gives of it back when it was still called "Wings for Wheels" uh, at the main point, February of 1975. So this is before it had been recorded, where like there are alternate lyrics that are just as good as anything that actually made it onto the record. Like uh, you know, it says you know, roll down the window and let the wind blow back your hair. It's the rush. It's like the rushing touch. Of them dirty wings the highway angels wear. Well, tonight we're going to find out how that feels. I'm going to trade in your wings for wheels. That's a beautiful <laughs> set of couplets, and it didn't make it into the final song, which is why the song is no longer called Wings for Wheels. It's called Thunder Road. so much good music that he couldn't even figure out where to put it. I think the biggest disappointment on this album in that respect for me is She's the One. On this album, there are two songs that I'd say just sort of sit there inertly and don't do much. One of them is Night. Night has just always been sort of the weak sister on Born to Run. It's not a bad song. It's just like whatever. It's like two and a half minutes of, uh, you know, sort of frenetic noise. Uh, But then there's She's the One. She's the One could have been so much better than it was. And if you heard those early versions of it, where it's about twice as long and there's extra verses and there's also, like, we talked about pilfering lyrics, you know, the way he would steal a lyric from an unused track and then go use it on something else. As it turns out, you listen to the early live version of it and you realize that, like, half of it is Backstreets. Hmm. a song that hadn't been written yet. You know, like, you know, I hated you. I hated him when he Went away, all that stuff. That's originally from She's the One. I think it looks a lot better there than it does in Backstreets, which is always considered to maybe be the most bloated, like famous, beloved Bruce Springsteen epic of them all. I think that. It, Born to Run, you know, Scott. I want you to say something new about Born to Run because nobody else, you know, I certainly can't, and you know, we really need to give it its due. But I will say this: that the most underrated track on on this album is uh, is got to be Meeting Across the River. It's the least performed song on all of Born to Run, I think, he, you know, until like this sort of like neo-nostalgia era, you know, where Bruce is just bringing out all the old hits because all of his boomer fans want to see him play the classic albums front to back and stuff like that. Uh, he didn't play it more than like, you know, like 15, 16 times throughout the entirety of the 70s. But man, that is an amazing, moody uh atmospheric piece of music it's about a drug deal that you know is going to go bad doesn't say it Nobody is saying it's going bad but it's obvious that these people are in over their heads you know hey you know stick this in your stick this in your pocket it'll look like you've got a friend you know all we need to do is make this big score and then we're going to be great we're going to have it made and you just know that no these guys are going to end up in the east river Hmm. by the end night it's going to be a really sad ending and it's all implied it's implied by that wonderful piano that piano melody which just sounds like you know there's like it's a it's a dusty late 2 a.m night it's hot there's like one street light that's on and it's casting like a really kind of like a a, a dim tepid yellowy shadow, you know light onto the ground and that's the only thing you can see for like you know a hundred yards and that's where the deal is going to go down and that's where it's all going to go wrong
4: but Jerry says she's gonna walk because she found i took the radio and hocked it But any man she don't understand That two grands practically Sitting here in my pocket Tonight's gonna be everything that I said And when I walk through that door I'm just gonna throw that money on the bed She'll say this time I wasn't just talking And I'm gonna go out walking
1: I love that song. And I think that song is so much better than the big epic that ends the album, which is Jungle Land, which, as I pointed out earlier, now that's West Side Story and song. There is literally a line in Jungle Land where, what does he say? Is the hungry and the hunted explode into rock and roll bands. Where I and face off against each other out in the streets, down in jungle land. and all I can just do is imagine the sharks and the jets snapping their fingers and going,
0: <laughs> "Be cool, be cool, be cool,"
1: and listen, I like rock theatrics, okay? I, I'm not going to pretend that I don't, but it's 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 so kind of over the top. It's it's the it's the point where. Bruce almost threatens to disappear up his own posterior in terms of like the rock theatricality and I'm just I'm, I'm, you can't see me but I'm throwing out jazz hands here. <laughs> you know uh, it's 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 the one moment where it almost gets a little bit silly but it is of course still a beautiful song and who can argue with the way that it ends
4: outside the streets on fire real death walls between what's flesh and what's and the poem- Can understand, stand, but they wind up wounded, not even dead, tonight in jungle land.
0: I, I I don't know that I can say anything new about Born to Run. I'm sorry, but uh, I'll say something very obvious, which is, uh, the E Street Band is very good. Um, and, and and this is where, as Jeff mentioned, they they come together. The, this is the band that's that sounds so full on Born to Run. The title track. I mean, all those pieces come together. Uh, Clarence Clemens' horn sort of fattens the sound where it's needed. The the guitar tone is perfect uh, throughout. Uh, it's, it's a great song. You guys have said so much about the other ones that I, I love here. Thunder Road, Jeff, Jeff talked a lot about the lyrics to Thunder Road. For me, Thunder Road too is about those little, those little moments in in the course of the song, you know, the first piano, that the first guitar peels, uh, the sax solo, uh, that, the, the final lyric, it's a town full of losers. I'm pulling out here to win, uh, the, the way the drums crash into the chorus, the glockenspiel, the, all these little, moments that we know how many months uh, Springsteen took to get exactly right certainly pay off on Thunder Road. Tenth Avenue frees out is one of the greatest openings to any song ever. That that horn chart, uh those guitar licks into the snare drum roll and the piano, it's a fantastic uh intro and you can hear I'm telling you you can hear Springsteen smiling when he when he says, you know, the big man joined the band. You can just hear that little smile uh in the corner of his mouth as he as he has that lyric uh backstreets is great um uh, I'll, I'll say this and I know i'm i gonna in, in, have the wrath of springsteen fans on me that's that's all right jungle land is the one of these big big epic springsteen songs that i've not been able to connect with during the course of listening to uh the, these albums uh backstreets yes uh the ones from the last album yeah uh jungle land i i don't know if i have a specific reason i i but it has not hit me the way that i expected it to given uh the the sort of mythical status it has it's it's a, every top 10 list of springsteen song it's somewhere there uh, but jungle land never quite hit me in that way at least in these couple of weeks that i've been listening to uh to uh to born to run uh, the, the full album this is I don't know it's going to make my, my two albums at the end of the episode, but as Dan said, this is absolutely, you know, Springsteen's grasp of creating the the rock and roll album, and he got pretty darn close if he didn't get it all the way. Um, and, and, you know, thematically, as you go from the last album, which is a lot of, you know, th- these possibilities, what might happen on the Jersey Shore and what's what's ahead, Born to Run, the album is sort of acknowledging that, you know not all possibilities are 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 out there roads are closed uh, theoretically uh or and perhaps figuratively uh but but maybe just maybe you can get out you know you can pull out to win you you, you know you can get away from uh, the town as described on born to run of the death trap uh, suicide rap you, you, maybe you can be the person to get out uh and that's sort of the the theme that pushes born to run forward
1: hey i just want to point out uh you know Born to Run, uh, the song, which is probably like the, the ultimate, the most iconic song Bruce Springsteen will ever write, one of the greatest rock singles of the 1970s. Didn't even make it into the top 20. Not even the top 20. It didn't get that high high you know there was like you know appalling disco stuff that was like hitting number one in 1975 and and born to run was just lurking outside of the top 20 and i'm sorry you can think that bruce springsteen is overrated but that's just a load of horse shit right there
2: That, 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 that is seriously wrong One other thing I want to note here too Is that you know and, and you see this very directly In the change from Wings to Wheels to Thunder Road Is that you do see um, And, and the, the, the almost Self-parodic nature of Jungleland Is is part of that This is a much more earnest Album and a lot less kind of Tongue-in-cheeky and, and shaggy doggy Than maybe some of the Earlier Bruce. Uh, and one of the things you see in that, there, there's a line in, uh, in Wings for Wheels, where, where he, he says, you know, now the season's over, I feel it like getting cold. I wish I could take you to some sandy beach where we'd never grow old. Ah, but baby, you know, that's just jive. But tonight's <laughs> to open and I'm alive. Like, there's still that sense that like, I, maybe I'm kind of putting you on here with all of this. And that, that is gone. Again, I think Wings for Wheels is a wonderful song. I think Thunder Road is a better song. But you know, there are some things that get lost in the translation. Now the season's over and I feel it getting cold.
4: Well, I wish I could take you to some sandy beach where we'd never grow. Oh but baby, you know that's just jive. But tonight's busting opening. I'm alive. Do what you can to make me feel like I'm But this 442's gonna overheat Make up your mind, girl I gotta get her back out on the street I know you're lonely like me Oh, so don't fake me Yeah, maybe I can't lay the stars at your feet But I got this old car And she's pretty tough to beat There's plenty of room in my front seat Oh, if you think you can make it Climb for losers and maybe i
1: was born to win and boy that's as good a way to take us to what the next album was going to be than than i could even hope for because bruce springsteen comes out with this wonderful album gets to number three in the charts the album itself um Huge! He's on the cover of Time and Newsweek simultaneously. Think about that. This is back when Time and Newsweek were like big deals. <laughs> they basically drove media coverage in the United States. If they were on, if you were, on, if you're on the cover of those magazines, you were what people were thinking about. He was on the cover of both in the same week, which actually probably makes me think that there were a lot of angry editors at both magazines because they're like, "Oh man, they're stealing our thunder!" Right? Because, <laughs> like, like you, which one are we going to get? It took him three years to put out a follow-up album to this, and why is that? Well, there's a there's a whole backstory behind that, and in fact, it's a backstory that has filled up not only you know countless books, but also the dockets of many a court hmm. uh, in New York and New Jersey. Uh, this is when he finally made a break with his manager, Mike Capel. Uh, And he said, I I don't I don't want you to produce me or manage me anymore. I don't feel like you've given me a good deal. I don't feel like you did a good job with my music. I want to go with John Landau instead. And this is the point where John Landau ceases to be a music critic and becomes a full time producer. Uh, And uh, that, of course, leads Mike Appel to file a bunch of lawsuits for breach of contract. There's a lot of horrible, bad blood about this. Springsteen tours in 1976. And 75, 76, 77, nonstop, basically, he's on the road. Uh, and, of course, this is sort of his lost era. They've only just recently started releasing a few like soundboard recordings from this. They're all in his vaults, I imagine. Um, and it's only in 1978 that he finally emerges with uh, a new album. And the name of that album couldn't be more fitting. It's called Darkness on the Edge of Town there's no more of that joking around in this album there's no more of that goofing around there's no more kidding kidding on the square there's none of that what there is is a bunch of very serious very angry and i would say almost laser focused thematically uh songs about broken dreams Mm -hmm. and broken lives and you know people who are going to try they might make it they might fail we don't know and you know ominous things lurking in the shadows of the night and in darkened corners of rooms uh this is an album that i think a lot of bruce springsteen fans would claim is actually their favorite album this is the one that i think like the really hardcore springsteen people love especially i think because the tour that attended this album in 78 when he finally got it released uh was just you know Rapturous stuff. There's just there's a lot of great concert recordings out there, some officially released at this point. It's amazing and like, you're not gonna go wrong, go listening to a nineteen seventy eight year Bruce Springsteen live concert.
4: Cleveland, how you doing? Are you ready to shake them summertime ruse? Cause you gotta wear the legs Sometimes I wonder What am I gonna do There ain't no cure For the summertime blues Well my mama Papa told me Son you gotta
1: make some uh, But this is the one Where the old Bruce The fun Scruffy You know You know Bunch of guys Hanging out on the corner Bruce Springsteen Of Jersey is gone and now we have more like i guess what would be his his persona you know moving forward which i i should think is, is sort of a characterize sort of midwestern heartland americana bruce this is where that begins
2: yeah and, and and darkness on the edge of town to me is the album that and jeff alluded to this it's the album that really defines whether you're a springsteen fan because like there's lots of people out there who love born to run we're in the usa you know who are not springsteen fans right and at the other end of the scale Bruce has a bunch of albums that some people love and some people don't. Right. But if you, if you love darkness, that's, you know, you get Bruce, you get at least sort of what Bruce's the bulk of Bruce's career has been about. Um, one part of this, Jeff asked about John Landau's influence. I mean, honestly, a part of this album is this is when Bruce starts reading books, right? I mean, Bruce is, he has this very kind of literate touch as a writer, but, you know, he's also this kind of guy from from the Jersey Shore who didn't pay much attention in school and uh, bummed around and, and, you know, didn't have hadn't traveled the world much or anything. And he didn't know a lot of things. And so he starts diving into uh you know he's he's doing more reading. He's sort of he's, he's growing up, and and I think uh, I think
1: there was some critic I I read who said that the the worst thing that John Landau ever did to Bruce Springsteen was give him a bunch of John Steinbeck.
2: <laughs> yeah, Steinbeck and like Flannery O'Connor, and 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 you know, and 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 it's not long after this you start seeing political Bruce, who makes his debut with the No Nukes concert in '79. But um, the and the tour to this album is, I I think. You know, a Bruce in '75 is great, but I think Bruce and the band in '78 is the absolute peak of them as a touring as a touring act. And there's so many high points. I think the Phaistos shows are probably the most famous of those. But um, there's a show in L.A. that they that they um, took like half the half the show and put it on the box set. Um, but uh, this album, you know the there's a couple things you start seeing here. Adam Raised a Cain is one of the ones that not a not a song I'm a big fan of, but um, that that really debuts, and you see it more implicitly elsewhere. This is the beginning of where you start seeing a lot of really kind of biblical stuff from Bruce, and and unsurprisingly, he starts with the Old Testament. Um, you know, his he has this strain that runs throughout his songwriting of that you are pursued by your sins, hmm. and and it's a very actually weirdly socially conservative thing because it's he he, over and over again, he comes back to the idea that the consequences of your actions and the consequences of your parents' actions will hound you and, and you will never, ever get away from, um, you know, the two sort of super highlights of this album, uh, Badlands and the Promised Land, which have been, you know, if you have been to a Bruce concert at any, any time in the last, you know, Thirty odd years. Badlands is really that is the kind of emotional highlight of the show. Um, it's it's the most sort of explosive uh, of all of his songs live. It is the song that you know if I was a major league baseball player, that'd be my walk up music. Is Badlands? <laughs> you know, that, that, that with the, the piano that just bangs away at the beginning. version of this is much better than the one on the album but the one on the album has its its charms and i think those two songs together really they really get at bruce's core philosophy that Mm -hmm. that we read his writing that you know the world is hard and life is hard and it's unfair and and there's all of this kind of darkness in human nature you know poor man want to be rich rich man want to be king he ain't satisfied till he rules everything, and yet there is this unshakable, unbreakable optimism that says, you know what? Like as bad as life is, it's important to believe in the big things and care about the big things. It's important to embrace adulthood and manhood and faith and stand your ground. And it's it's important a- and it ain't
1: it ain't no sin to be glad that you're alive, which <laughs> exactly. is the great line.
2: Yeah, that it, it's important to enjoy life, and he's got this, you know, he's got the, the quartet in there about, you know believe in the in the love and the faith and, and and you know and in the promised land he talks about you know the uh you know the twister to blow everything down that ain't got the faith to stand its ground so it, those two songs together um you know really knit together a, a sense of who and what bruce is about and will be about for the entire rest of his career and there's a lot of other great music on here too and i i think that <laughs> we're going to get into shortly the, the stuff that, that didn't make the cut.
1: Well, I mean, I, I, I will say this, that I guess I, I qualify as a Bruce fan. Well, I, I probably not in doubt, given how much I've mentioned all the various bootlegs and things like that up until this point. But uh, yeah, I think the on the edge of town is a fantastic album. I think there are flaws in it. Uh, factory I know what he's trying to do mm-hmm. It's 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 an it's one of those songs, it's an admirable song. It almost feels like one of those, you know, like uh, sort, of, sort of dutiful socialist realist novels where like, yes, the work, it's the working life. I'm I'm, I'm including this because I I want to say something about what it feels like to be the working man. But you know, what? he does it so much better on a song like The Promised Land anyway. The factory seems unimportant. Um, and I think, you know, if if I had to argue, I'd say Streets of Fire. <clears throat> Probably the weakest song yep. on the entire record. Yep. You know? uh, It was turned into a pretty good 80s movie with the same name. I don't think it was actually using the song <laughs> Streets of Fire. But if you've ever seen that exploitation schlock directed by Walter Hill, Streets of Fire, check it out. It's good. I, I like that kind of stuff. Uh, but uh, the darkness on this album is I've always found very mesmerizing. There are no anthems on this. Badlands, of course, is the anthem. The Promised Land, though, I don't think of that as an anthem. I think of that as, as probably his most profoundly moving you know, character sketch. It was that that I, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out where Waynesboro County is. It doesn't exist. He made it up, right? But that low opening line where it's like, I'm, I'm on a rattlesnake speedway in the Utah desert. I pick up my money, head back into town, driving across the Waynesboro County line. I got the radio on, and I'm just killing time, working all day in my daddy's garage. But – that wonderful sketch turns into something else where he says like you know I you know the dogs are howling on the street but you know I'm not a boy I'm a man and I believe in a promised land and I'm going to take that moment into my hands that's sort of like that optimism that Dan was talking about um there's the, the 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 final verse of that I think is I would argue maybe the single best lyric that Bruce Springsteen ever wrote and I think it's sort of I yes. The most iconic one of his sort of later, sort of whatever you want to call it, this uh, Steinbeckian period, where there's you know there's a dark cloud rising on the desert floor. I'm ha- packing my bags. I'm heading straight into the storm. There's gonna be a twister to blow everything down that ain't got the faith to stand its ground. And the way he sings, blow away the dreams that tear you apart. Oh God, that is uh, that's the, one of the like four or five finest moments of his entire career. Not just this year but his entire career.
0: to steal jeff 's line, but uh yes apparently i 'm a bigger Bruce Springsteen fan than I thought because Darkness on the Edge of town is my favorite album from this this decade of of Springsteen music. I really love this album um and, and part of it is that that focus uh it 's just you know there, there, there were a number of songs written that, that weren 't on the album, but all that remained were the, were the hardest songs uh in terms of theme and in terms of um this this sort of dark and unrelenting picture that he's trying to paint uh if born to run was about this opportunity to get out um darkness on the edge of town is what happens when you have no choice but to stay uh how do you manage it uh go to work and 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 get ready for friday nights perhaps and uh how, how do you how do you how do you how do you live in this place that you always wanted to get out of uh, and and, and find all these seedy sections and things happening around town. That's that's darkness. Uh, I I read this Springsteen quote about uh, songs on darkness, which I love. He says, all all my songs are about people at that moment when they've got to do something, just do something, do anything. And that's how a lot of these songs are set up on darkness. Um, Dan said he wasn't a giant fan of Adam raised a cane. But that is the song that grabbed me by the lapels and shook me uh, about darkness on the edge of town. It's such an intense song. And again, I had read Bruce talk about the production of that song, and it's, it's a little different than the rest of the album. He said, I want, you know, if, if, you're, if you see a picture of two lovers having a picnic in the park... Adam Raised a Cain should be a dead body like the next thing you see <laughs> a dead body and that's how Adam Raised a Cain should be yeah. produced it's very it's just very intense and these kind of shouted backing vocals by the E Street Band the story about this tense relationship between father and son and the way that Adam Raised a Cain is just shouted repeated at the end of the song uh, that's the one that really made me take notice of, of what was happening uh, on this record Like uh, like Candy's room, which is just full of lust and desire, and Weinberg working the hi hat on the intro, which that explodes uh, with uh, we kiss right, and then the, the song just explodes. Uh, but just full of okay, tension. you know, you, my theory about Candy's room, and this there's
1: nothing in the lyrics that bears this out, Scott. But I've always felt that it almost it, it's like a representation of a drug trip. Hmm. It, it feels like like shooting up. Like shooting heroin or something like that like you know we kiss and then and you're diving deep into the night diving deep into the light in candy's eyes and it's almost like uh people who dysfunction to get so it's like a sid nancy in a weird way is what i feel like when i think of candy's Hmm. room you know which is your baby if you want to be wild you've got a lot to learn you know close your eyes let them melt let them burn it's it's so weird it's a song about a man who's basically in love with a hooker or a call girl right Mm -hmm. uh but of course she really loves me even although the 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 high-priced men give her you know fancy gifts uh she really wants me what a wonderful wonderful theme for him to pick up on this is Mm -hmm. always one of my dad's favorite songs too just because i think he he keyed into like the weirdness of it it's funny we had born born in born in run. born in the usa in darkness on the edge of town at home and uh, whenever we put on darkness this is the one that he he put on first after <laughs> we got done with Badlands. i didn't want to read too much into that dad uh, but yeah what a great song we kissed my in my room,
4: and the blood rushes in my room. I'm in
0: promised land you guys both talked about it's fantastic it, it yeah it's on jeff's five it'll be on my five i love those three consecutive solos that that very taut tight uh i think a van zant solo the sax solo the harmonica solo before the third verse in the song uh just fantastic the the that intro that intro piano to prove it all night has been in my head for the better part of a week that will not go away with a great song and then the, the title track uh darkness on the edge of town um Wonderful set of lyrics from Springsteen. This this guy who is uh, ready to pay the cost for wanting things that can only be found in darkness at the edge of town. That is oh so descriptive. Such a great little couplet. Uh, I love that rolling piano in the verses. That that second verse. Everyone's got a secret. Is such a great piece of songwriting. It, it's a wonderful way to to close uh, the album. But but.
1: I it's mean, a horribly dark way to close it too. Are we talked yes. about like I lost my money and I lost, I lost my, my wife. wife. Those things don't matter much to me now. Yeah. It's like, it's like I'm just I'm gonna be out on that hill tonight. And again, it almost feels like it's a sequel to meeting across the river like what is he doing
2: out on that hill? You don't want to know. Yeah <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> it will thing- not end well <laughs> about this album too that you know we, you sit down and listen to it today um, but um it's also worth noting how totally wildly particularly after there was you know three years of, of people waiting for Bruce to come back with you know uh, Born to Run Part 2 and like the band go you know some of the band goes off and plays on like Meatloaf's album uh, and they, yes. they play on Bowie's album and, and after that after this and like Clarence goes and plays with Aretha and, and everything but Um, You know, there's all this waiting for Bruce to come back and he writes, you know, we we see this on the Promise Collection. He writes a lot of very poppy songs and everything. But this album is wildly out of step with everything else that's coming out in 1978, Right. I mean, he's beating them. He, he's baiting his fans
1: like racing in the streets literally makes it, it, it repurposes Martha and the Vandellas yes. dancing in the streets. You know, like you summer's, know, summer's here. here and the time is right for racing in the street. But it's the most defeatist song you'll <laughs> ever hear. Like, yeah, we go, we shut them down, we run them in the streets. Like, yeah, that. But then what is what's that last part where he's talking about his like his girlfriend? There's wrinkles around my baby's eyes, and she cries herself to sleep at night. You know, she comes home. When I come home, the house is dark. She, was, she sits on the porch in her daddy's house, and all of her pretty dreams are torn. She stares off alone into the night with the eyes of one who hates for just being born.
2: Whoa! Yeah. <laughs> it's the <Yeah>. darkest,
1: is <laughs> darkest. But now there's wrinkles around my baby's
4: eyes, and she cries herself to sleep at night when I come home, the house is dark. So stop, baby, did you make it all? She sits on the porch of her daddy's house, but all Just being born For all the shut down Strangers and hot rod angels Rumbling through this promised land Tonight my baby and me We're gonna ride to the sea And wash these sins off our hands Tonight Summer's here, and the time is right.
2: Yeah, we're not getting the. You know, we we. I think even without the lawsuit, we would not have gotten the Bruce Springsteen's Disco Phase album. <laughs> no,
1: but like it's he's it's he's, he's, he's for office. everyone who wanted another Born to Run. Here, here's Racing in the Street, and it's about everybody who like we've wasted our lives and we sit at home and we cry ourselves to sleep and we hate life just for living it. That is the (laughs) so, and it's of course one of the most beautiful things that he ever wrote. There's just glorious instrumental passages in that song, Uh, but wow, it's it's a heavy one.
2: And we have, did you guys want to talk about a little bit about the the tracks that didn't make it? Yeah, I mean,
1: the thing is, is that racing in the street is sort of like a a mirror to the promise. Uh, I don't know if that's the one that you were going to discuss, Dan. I can hold off and let you talk first.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, there's there's two there's two different strains here, right? Because on the one hand, you have Bruce writing all of this stuff that is poppy, that is, um, there's a song on tracks called Give the Girl a Kiss, which mm-hmm. is still very much a holdover from Born to Run. I think there's another one, So Young in Love, which I think actually was from the Born to Run sessions, that are still very much in the vein of all these horns. And they're they're pretty fun songs. Now, baby, here's I am. We'll make
4: close for understand. Desire's hunger is the fire I breathe. Love is a banquet on which we feed.
2: songs I mean you have Because the Night which he gives away to Patty Smith uh Talk to Me that he gives away to Southside Johnny Fire that he gives away to the Pointer Sisters um you know there's a bunch of good ones on on The Promise that if you you know you might not have heard before Save My Love is a wonderful song I think that that one was somewhat heavily re-recorded but Dude, um, there's that Buddy Holly song
1: that's awesome. Uh, was it like Outside Looking In? It's a total Buddy Holly steal. And, like, guess what? Bruce Springsteen doing Buddy Holly tributes? I'm in for that. I am <laughs> really, really <laughs> here to hear Bruce Springsteen play Buddy Holly tribute music. It's all
4: over now, the fun we've had.
2: And you hear, you know, these other ones. I mean, ain't good enough for you. Uh, Got to get that. There's so much, and it's 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 a totally different vibe. But it's because it's a different vibe that it doesn't make it onto Darkness. Right. Um. But the the one that that goes, I think, in the opposite direction. And uh, Jeff is going to hate me because I think this is the most overrated Springsteen song of all. Is the Promise. Um. And, and I think that you know the version of it that gets released on the uh the Promise Sessions. Is particularly dull, um, or on eighteen tracks? I guess it is. There, it's on, it's on both. It's um, a long
1: recording history. That eighteen tracks one is like a nineteen ninety eight solo piano re-recording of it. It's not from the darkness era. The uh, the one that's on the promise two CD set that is from those sessions. Sorry yeah. to just be the nerd. I'm correct.
2: <laughs> yeah, you. no, and it's it's musically drippy. Even the even the better versions of it are, are kind of drifting uh lyrically it makes um you know adam raised a cane or, or racing in the streets sound like a sesame street song um i i think i think i dislike it in part because it, it is lacking in that even glimmer of hope that you find in 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 you know badlands and the promised land but um but i know jeff uh thinks differently I do feel differently. I do not think that it is like the lost masterpiece
1: of Springsteen's career. But for those who are unaware, this is, I would say, it's fair to characterize it as the, the great, most hyped, lost outtake of Springsteen's career prior to its ultimate and eventual release. Up to the point where the, when he did that four CD box set tracks, which we've been referring to constantly during the show and, and will again during the next episode, uh, he didn't include it on that set. And everybody just thought this was an act of willful perversion, <laughs> but I, I think it was uh, you know a situation where he was never entirely satisfied with the original studio recording. Maybe he thought it was too drippy, as Dan says. So he did that little you know soft 1998 re-recording of it. Uh, but the reason it's so legendary is that he has hotly denied this, but nobody believes him, and I don't believe him either. That it's written about the sort of disintegration of his relationship with Mike Appel, and the way he you know these lost. Suits and all this backbiting and this fighting in the press and everything conspired against him to sort of what he thought at the time he was gonna have was blowing his big shot you know he finally had put together born to run the album that he'd always wanted to do the great rock album and and then he had to wait 3 years and tour endlessly and they, the they, 1976 and 1977 tours are colloquially referred to by fans as the quote lawsuit tour and it's because that was when he was breaking up with the Pell and they were you know going back and forth in the courts and things like that so what's the lyric you know he, he talks about like you know uh you know The song is nominally about like a guy who's like I put together this great car and we go up and race it, and you know, but then somebody betrays him, and so he says, "When the promise was broken, I cashed in a few of my dreams, you know, and I I built that car by myself, but I needed money, so I sold it. I lived a secret I should have kept to myself, but I got drunk one night and I told it." and you're right it's it's a very dark thing and he even goes and he says thunder road oh you were something right. oh you were so right thunder road he's he's invoking his classic song from born to run but what is it there's something dying down there on the highway tonight
4: I love the dream.
1: Maybe it is a little depressing. I think the real reason it was kept off the album is because he thought he did a better job conveying the same completely defeatist and depressing (laughs) sentiments on racing in the street, which, of course, covers a lot of the same ground. You can't have both of those songs on one album so what did he do he made a pick and i think he made the right choice too i don't hate you for disliking it dan but it 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 is a a justifiably famous outtake and it's sort of like one of those like sort of key missing pieces to understand what the whole bruce springsteen story was about during this era
0: the other one i want to mention very quickly that could have very well been on darkness is uh don't look back and That is in the same vein as almost Badlands and Promised Land, which is why it probably didn't make the cut. But quality-wise, I think it could have stood alongside the other songs on darkness without any issues. Uh, You know, lyrically... uh, you know kind of winning against long odds fighting against long odds uh kind of chunky guitar riffs kind of hard angular sound which very much would have fit on the darkness album but i think it was a little too similar to badlands and the promised land and you're not leaving either of those two off the album so don't look back is on the sidelines but is on the tracks album too
1: that leads us to the uh, the eternal question Scott is a dream a lie if it don't come true <laughs> or is it something worse that sends us to talk about the river that is the next album the last album that we'll be covering during this show. And uh, yeah, if you thought Racing in the Street was a depressing song, you thought <laughs> Darkness on the Edge of Town was a depressing song, go listen to The River and then, then climb into the bathtub and slowly open a vein. I can't believe this song is always included on its greatest hits. I guess musically it is a good song, but if I, I could tell you, you know, this is a good album and it is in an objective sense, melodically, a good song, I can't tell you any piece of music I would less la- rather listen to <laughs> than The River because that's the saddest damn thing. You will ever hear. And Uh, yet,
2: it is only the second most depressing song to end. One of the th- one of the records on the river. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think wreck on the highway Wrecking at least highway, you know uh, yeah that other
1: guy died but uh, he's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should think wreck on the highway is a fantastic song. Okay, what are we talking about? This is Bruce Springsteen's epic double album. All great artists are supposed to have an epic double album, aren't they? Well, the question here is: should the river have actually been a triple album, or should it have been a single album, or should it have been a better selected? double album i would probably uh come down on that last uh option but this is the one that both unites and divides fans because everybody agrees that it has some of his best ever material on it and then everybody agrees it has some of his worst or not worst but just completely like why did this get included material on it and it seems that nobody can quite agree what material that is
0: (laughs) i would uh, of the three options you gave I would almost say, uh, uh, not that I would do this commercially, but a, a triple album. I mean, there's enough left off, which we'll get to in a bit. Um, and I think the stuff that is on both of the, uh, the the albums that that exist in the river are good enough to, to stick around. But the ones that are left off also uh, can, can stand there, too. You know, this is unlike darkness because it is not darkness uh, nonstop. Throughout the entire album, Uh, there's an effort perhaps to show, you know, in in my mind, a fuller picture of what life among the darkness is, right? If darkness maybe gives you a slice in 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 a hard slice. This is more of a, um, uh, of a fuller picture. You know, there are moments of uh, levity. There are moments of just rocking out like uh, you can look uh, or crush And then you, you have
1: Side 3, which opens with Point Blank. Yes. Then it has a song about dying in Cadillac Ranch, and it ends with Stolen Car, which yeah. is almost as
0: dark as the river. <laughs> Yeah, and, and what, is Fade Away 3 or 4? I, I don't have that. Fade Away is also on that on side, yes. Right, and, and and so you have all of that, all of that next to each other in places. Um, and I, I, I do like that uh, about The River, a, a conscious decision to sort of show you everything, serious and goofy and dark and hopeful, and it all exists on the same album, in the same place. Um, and one thing I want to point out here, I mentioned at the very start of the show, um, you know, Bruce Springsteen's uh, songwriting, I think, lyrically gets a a ton of attention, rightfully so. But his songwriting from a from a melodic standpoint, from a music standpoint, there are a lot of songs on the river. And again, remember, I'm hearing many of these songs for the very first time as I'm prepping for this show. There are a number of songs and not even the ones you might think that that stuck with me in my in my head. Days after I heard them for the very first time. And two of them are, are, are the dark ones, point blank and fade away uh, from that third sign. When
4: I was gonna be your you were gonna be my Julia. These days you don't wait on OMEOs, you wait on that will fetch, and on all the pretty little things that you can't ever have, and on all the promises that always i
0: Both those are, 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 are not, you know, upbeat, happy, rock and roll numbers. But both of them have this this melody, this, this hook that really works well. And I think in many corners of these four records, or four sides, I should say, four records, uh, four sides, you really see how good Springsteen is at, at writing melodies. They are just super sharp, even on those slower moments. Uh, and that helps make them even more powerful in, Independence Day. Another place where I think that that the melody is just super super strong um you know there are there are portions here that are that are extremely light, maybe you know too light I mean what, what do you think about sherry darling, which is uh, I think Bruce has even said is just a it's a frat rock song it's, it's all he was trying to write a party song there's there's whooping in the background there's noises it's it's supposed to be it was fun. supposed to
1: be like you know the same you know the Bobby
0: Fuller four right. I fought
1: the law and the law one kind of a thing that was the way I heard him Louie. yeah, Louie Louie, right exactly.
0: Yeah. And that exists. I mean, and,
1: and by the way, that was an outtake from, um, uh, or yes. an offcutting from "Darkness on the Edge of Town." Yeah. it's funny about the river. There's so many of these songs that actually came from "Darkness." You thought that you thought that "Darkness on the Edge of Town" was too dark. Well, imagine if it included <laughs> "Point Blank" and "Independence Day," which were both recorded originally for that album but uh, then you know right it would have been right up there with like you know, you know a velvet underground album or something <laughs> like that in terms of like you know bleakness uh, but yes and in, instead there is this this sort of light and shadow contrast that goes on on the record
0: yeah and, and just yeah, you know po-
2: point-blank Independence Day and cherry darling are all played pretty extensively on tour on the, the darkness tour
1: exactly right I mean almost every every single gig had one and uh, it, they Pretty good performances, and they're actually basically the same performances that you're going to end up hearing. Point Blank has like a longer spiel in in the middle of it, that I think ends up getting subtracted out and put into another song later. But anyways, what were you saying, Scott?
0: No, I, I was going to allow you guys to talk as well. Except, um, a Wreck of the Highway, which uh, Dan alluded to earlier, which which closes this uh, album is is <laughs> just so so powerful. Um, you know, the guy is haunted by seeing this hit and run crash. Uh, can't sleep, he's thinking about it, he thinks about who's affected by the crash, so the wife or the girlfriend, he sees the, you know, pictures the state trooper knocking on the door um, and, and it's almost entering another uh, section of of songwriting in which you're not just contemplating your life in this town or you know this this dead end town but now you're thinking about the future and what it could be and and what what impact your life has on others life it's it's a it's a really interesting way to to end uh the four sides of the river
4: Sometimes
0: I-
1: I also think that it's one of the very few times during this era, and actually during most of his eras, that you hear Springsteen doing something that sounds vaguely country. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's it, 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 you know you don't have you don't have pedal steel guitars and you know twang and stuff like that, but you have the way that Danny Federici plays that organ uh, over top of the uh, uh, of the uh, you know piano by Roy Bitten is just so sort of you know plaintive and, and lonely and haunting. You do feel like you know like it's the sound of somebody late night driving on like a country road. Last night I was out driving and I saw this, this horrible accident and uh, the way it ends with just that, just the quiet comping into the distance, just the band playing very, very quietly and fading out. It's so low key. It's so subtle. Uh, It is, I think one of the best moments on an album where the big upbeat pop moments are, are generally my least favorite. I mean, I don't dislike Hungry Heart. Everyone likes Hungry Heart, right? Hungry Heart comes on the radio, and, you know, I went the school in Baltimore. So, like, it's always <laughs> fun when you hear Baltimore referenced in a song. Usually it's like, you know, Randy Newman talking about how Baltimore is dying. The city is dying in its heart. So it's kind of funny to hear Bruce say, like, I got a wife and kids in Baltimore. Jack, I went out for a ride, and I never came back. It's like the old urban legend about a guy who goes out for a pack of smokes and, like, abandons his family, and yet Bruce somehow thinks this is, like, fun good times music, right? <laughs> yeah, well, that that's, that's very very Bruce Springsteen thing to do. Ramrod. I am. Ramrod It is. I've been offended by that song. Why is that song on this album? <laughs> Crush on You Shouldn't Be There. You know, Jackson Cage is okay. I don't hate it. But like there's just like this is when we say, like, wouldn't have this been a much better album if he'd substituted out like some of those good timey numbers for a lot of other wonderful outtakes that had been left on the cutting room floor, things like loose ends or you know, I want to be where the bands are. That's a fun song. Restless nights. Uh, It's, it's the dark stuff on this album that does drive me. I have to admit that, that I am drawn to his, his increasing focus on like, you know, sort of these, these, these human dramas. There's a song on this record that's called stolen car. That if you listen to it on the album, you almost miss it. If you're not paying attention, it's so quiet. It's so calm, you know, he he, it's almost like a ghostly moan in the night you know i'm driving a stolen car through a pitch black night and you only get the briefest outlines of what's going on something is wrong there's a a relationship a marriage that's fallen apart and now this guy's just on the run he's on the run from his past he's on the run from his mistakes And then you go back and you you hear the alternate version of Stolen Car that wasn't released. It's on tracks. I think it's been released on this big river box set that you can get as well. And you hear the full version, a completely different version, a more sort of like a a classical Springsteen approach. Uh, And uh, it's one of the very few songs that will make me cry where like you know he talks about sitting across the river and you know there's there's a you know there's a party going on across the river you can see the dancing you can see the 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 the, the party lights shine and then he talks about how i can remember how uh, great it i can remember how it felt inside when the preacher said to me son you can kiss the bride mm. but then then as i touched her pretty little lips i felt it all slip away through my fingertips he's dreaming about you know, reuniting. Last night I dreamed that I'd I'd called her and I said I'd I'd come back and we'd get back together. And now what is he doing? He's just driving a stolen car. And the worst part about it is that nobody even sees him. Nobody sees him as he drives by. He's just fading into non-existence. That is Bruce Springsteen at his greatest. And I almost, as much as I love that alternate version, I understand why he went with this more stripped-down, bare-bones version because it was sort of like almost an artistic exercise of stripping away all of those details to the point where you knew that there was something there that had been removed, that was missing, and it allows you to fill in the blanks. I think Stolen Car is one of the greatest achievements of Bruce Springsteen's career, and I think that it's uh, you know maybe kind of an uncharacteristic, uncharacteristic pick because you know I don't. I don't think he plays it that often in concert because it's a huge bummer mm-hmm. and I don't know how often people focus on it you know as one of his great songs but I do think that it is
2: Uh, I'm, I'm gonna well i'm gonna first of all i the I, I, you definitely should if you've only heard the album version go listen to that alternative version of stolen car um and i do like the alternative version better i, I really think the, the the songs that could have come off this album honestly i've never liked stolen car or drive all night which runs on for eight and a half minutes ah,
1: well you're wrong about stolen car obviously but you're right about drive all night that's
2: terrible it, it's i get why that song had to be that long but the mere fact that it's that long kind of drags and there could have been something else there. I mean, the other songs, you know, as you said, things like Jackson Cage and, and I'm a Rocker and, and Crush on You, those are good songs, uh, but they're kind of generic. They, they could have been replaced with other things. Um, Point Blank also, I think, is one where there, there's a big, like, musical intro that, that Bruce has done sometimes uh, to that song live, and I think it, it, it actually is better than the, um, than the way it's arranged in the, the studio. Um, But this definitely, you know, Bruce, of course, had recorded a single album and threw it out and decided to do a double album. This is not a case of, you know, sometimes artists who sort of back themselves into a double album, either because they felt they should record one or because they couldn't edit themselves. Bruce very clearly made a decision that he wanted this album to feel long and sweeping, right? That he wanted to contain all these different themes uh and and that's that's why it is the album is the way it is um you know i love uh i love sherry darling it's probably my favorite song on the album You know, I love Cadillac Ranch, which just really kind of brings, it's just such a thumper. Um, there's an even better, I think one of the, the best live version of that, I think he does one in the, uh, the Tempe, Arizona show in 1980, just takes off. But, you know, the, the way just he brings every piece of the band into that song in succession and, and you know, makes, brings them all to the fore uh, is tremendous. Um, you know, there's so many good songs on here, Out in the Street is excellent. Um, I think the two that, um, the two that, that really, really, and and by the way, I love wreck on the highway is it's bleakness is, uh, very much part of its appeal. The two though, that really, really, I think, uh, we shouldn't sleep on here. Um, one is independence day and, and, you know, of all of Bruce's butting heads with his dad songs, and there's a number (laughs) of them. Uh, Adam raised a cane right <laughs> yeah and some of them are implicit and some of them are quite explicit about butting heads with his dad uh, this is the masterpiece of those and it's um, you know it's one of those ones that it, it, it you know talk about sort of choking you up and getting you in the feels and all of that I mean it, you know when I got to the age of moving out of the house you know I didn't have the kind of relationship with my dad that Bruce did but you know that that sense of like separating um, and that, you know it's sort of hit me on a whole separate level, which I'm sure Jeff is already dreading, um, when, you know, my son moved out a year ago, you know, he's out of college, got a job, you know, and just that sense of like, the, he captures, Bruce captures that moment of, of having to, to you know, make that separation from, from your family uh, in that song so well, and it just, it hits so hard.
4: Highway all alone. Oh, Papa, go to bed now. It's getting late. Nothing we can say can change anything now. This is just different people coming down here now, and they see things in different ways. And so everything we've known will just be swept away. So sad. But now I know the things you wanted that you could say the
2: other one I would really um, want to highlight here is the price you pay which is and again another song that 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 directly in, uh, evokes you know sort of this biblical uh, Moses um, mm-hmm. imagery um, and 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 lays out again this idea of consequences that there're just some things that you just you have to make certain compromises and he talks elsewhere on the record you know that you know i want to marry you about you know having to face up to our responsibilities right this is a very much a bruce turning 30 and and thinking about adulthood record um but the price you pay is just it's tremendous it it really is it's um you know it's such a strong melody um with the piano and and this is a song i heard him do this live when he did the entire river at a show in 2016 and this is one song, Price You Pay, is definitely a song that, that has gotten richer as Bruce, um, you know, is older uh, and plays maybe it maybe a slightly different, I think he played it in a different key, different, slightly different tempo, but to so where it kind of sails, the song kind of sails. Um, but it's, it's a tremendous song on the record and it, it, it is very powerful piece, uh, you know, that, that, that has grown over time.
4: Strand with that pretty little baby in your hands. Do you remember the story of the promised land? How we crossed the desert sand and could not enter the chosen land on the bank.
1: About the river itself, the title track, as I joked at the, the outset here, was one of the most famously depressing hit singles of all time. This is a song about, uh was it? You know, <clears throat> I got Mary pregnant, and man, that was all she wrote. And, and for my was for my 18th birthday, I got a union card and a wedding coat. Mm-hmm. And then you know, like, and then the horrible thing, like we you know, like you know, I act, you know, all of our dreams have died, and. Uh, You know, I act like I can't remember, and Mary acts like she don't care. But I can.
2: It's It is is a good song, and it's it's. I mean, it's it almost plays like something you would play in a you know, like tenth grade sex ed class. Like kids don't get your girlfriend pregnant. (laughs) Premarital sex is bad. Here's why. I mean, look, I you know I went to Catholic schools, and believe me, that was this song was more or less like a a morality play, (laughs) Um, and it. Uh, you know Jeff mentioned Bruce B Bruce's father being part Dutch and that's where his name comes from. But don't forget Bruce's you know his mother is a Sicilian. He has a very kind of you know this kind of deep Catholic school background.
1: <laughs> I mean it's a beautiful song uh, it's just one of those songs where I've grown tired of it simply because the relentless gloom almost seems like as you said, as you implied Dan a parody of Springsteen.
4: But I remember a slide in
1: You know, one other one I want to mention that isn't on the album and should never have been on the album. This was a born and destined to always be B-side, and I'm glad it's a B-side. But I love it to death because it's maybe one of the, the most hysterical songs that Bruce Springsteen ever wrote. It's a song called Roulette. That's great. Guys...
3: Yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. This is Bruce Springsteen's major nuclear paranoia song. But because it's Bruce Springsteen, he wrote it like it's a like a Sylvester Stallone action film. Yes. All right.
0: That's what I, I have actually have written down here. The narrative could be a movie script. That's it's exactly right. the way it reads.
1: They stopped me at the roadblock, they put up on the interstate, they put me in detention, but I broke loose and then I ran. They said they wanted to ask me a few questions, but I think they had other plans. It's like that is literally the climax of an action film. And in fact, yeah. I think it actually feels like it comes out of like you know the, the ending of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. When <laughs> Richard Dreyfus is trying to get up to like Devil's Mountain or whatever. But it's, it's, it's obviously written in the wake of Three Mile Island. And it, 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 is, it is, would never – it would have been the worst mistake in the world to include it on the album. Because it's so jarring, you know, relative to this sort of somber and thoughtful sort of personal stories that are being told on this record. But man, I love it to death. I love it to death because it's like, you know, it, it's, again, it's a great story. It's like I was a fireman on Rikers. I did my job, Mister. I've been cheated. I feel like I've been robbed. Uh, he's talking about like how his, his neighborhood got shut down because there was like a nuclear explosion or like you know a mm. release of gas or whatever Chernobyl style, um, you know. And you know, and then now he can't get back into his his neighborhood to find out what happened, and the authorities are trying to detain him. And again, this <laughs> is just this wonderful, wonderful sense of frothing paranoia that you'd never associate with Bruce Springsteen because he. He's normally so controlled he's so focused he's so measured he's really careful about how he presents himself in this part of his career Uh, and then you have this where he's just like he's like a bug-eyed alex jones kind of thing (laughs) folks you gotta hear roulette
4: Down by the river that talks The night speaks in search Lights and short Web radios wow. With the police That the streets But I left behind The man I used to be Everything he believed And all that belongs to me I decided to find my way Out to somewhere I thought it'd be safe but I the roadblock It put up on the interstate And put me in detention But I was go no bruising And I ran you they-
2: it's a good song and, and you're right you, you couldn't I mean you couldn't literally like set off a nuclear bomb in the middle of the album and then go back to like something like I want to marry you it's like <laughs> <laughs> that would have been really yeah, the, the annals of like really
1: great tracking decisions is putting you know roulette right after uh, you know fade away and wreck on the highway
2: or <laughs> like. yeah. there's a lot of good stuff he left on the cutting room floor though yeah. from this uh, Jeff mentioned loose ends we didn't count
3: we took
2: I really love the cover version of it, from Small Things, Big Things, One Day Come. Bruce's version of this is good, but the Dave Edmonds version of it is just absolutely a classic. It might be my all-time favorite sort of somebody else's version of a song Bruce gave away. Um, you know, he's got a bunch of upbeat ones, things like Beat Me in the City. Um, he's got, if you look on the, I think on the sessions, of this there's a song called Party Lights, which is kind of the proto version of Jersey Girl. And there's also Living on the Edge of the World. Which is interesting because it's Bruce's one sort of foray into uh, new wave.
1: Early North was, Jersey industrial skyline and the, oh uh, oh uh, oh oh very Elvis Costello.
2: Yeah, and he reuses some of the lyrics on that too. I think in in Open All Night and there's another one called Chain Lightning, which is very kind of tense and and it very kind of tight rocker. So there is there is a lot there is a, there is a, there is <laughs> a full album worth of good yes. stuff. Not on this
0: album. Jeff already mentioned Restless Nights, which is a really great song with a fantastic melody. And again, with the E Street Band on backing vocals, the one that I like a lot that I think, you know, would have fit, um, well, maybe next to I Want to Marry You, which is I Want to Be With You, uh, perhaps too similar. But uh, clearly like a a power pop raspberries tribute, you know, I Want to Be With You is the name of a raspberry song as well. But uh, it's got this great descending bass line that heads into the chorus, Bruce's vocals are very loose, very passionate. Uh, you know, this song could be played at a wedding. Not Jeff's wedding. He picked a different song. Uh, but it could be a wedding song. Till they rip out my heart, I want to be with you. Right in the chorus. It's just a fun, upbeat pop. And again, uh, just Bruce Springsteen, especially around these river sessions, I think just had a tremendous way with uh, with melody. And especially there on, on sort of his, the, the power pop Bruce in I Want to Be With You. Hey!
1: so many wonderful b-sides and outtakes from the river sessions that there's no way you can ever really mention them all there's an alternate version of you can look but you better not touch that's better than the one that was actually released on the album that it was the one that he was going when this was supposed to be a single a single disc album that was the one he was going to put on it's kind of a rockabilly thing that's great there's where the bands are there's there's this stupid thing called uh, "Be True," which is basically just an excuse to hear Clarence Clemens blowing that crap out of his <laughs> horn, and you know it's all about the the, the actual verses themselves, the melody. The, the, it's 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 by number stuff. It, it isn't very inspired, but then all of a sudden you get to to Clarence going, blah, 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 and you're like, yeah, and you're just like doing that thing with your fist pumping in the audience at a stadium. Uh, there's you know, uh was it? Bring on the night. Nobody ever talks about that song. It's another one that just like, found its way out on tracks. You could get lost for a very long time in the stuff that didn't make it onto the river, and then you have to reckon with the stuff that actually is on the river itself. You know, you, you can't just listen to you know Cindy and Ricky wants a man of her own and Dollhouse all the time. You're gonna have to reckon <laughs> with the uh, wreck on the highway and stolen car and point blank and things like that. Um, this is. I would say it will kind of go down and so sort of, this is the way we'll end this first episode of the two-parter. See, this is his most musically fertile period. The the mm-hmm. period that runs from like the 1979 uh, the River sessions uh, and 1979-1980 but all the way through to the Born in the Ru- Born in the USA sessions, so going all, all the way through 84. Uh, he's going to put together, release and record and keep in the vaults and then only release much later more music than he ever does throughout the rest of his career combined um this is obviously per the period of his greatest commercial success too right you know nobody mentioned it but the river was his first number one album yes uh, and this is the one that makes him a commercial force. hungry heart becomes a big hit big hit single the river mysteriously becomes a big hit single too because i guess people just want to like listen to suicidal music when they you know cruise around in their their convertibles. Uh, but this is the era where he becomes the Bruce Springsteen that will then take on the 80s. Uh, of course, as we'll discuss the next time we, we gather together, he does one very interesting left turn before he gets to that. Uh, but this is a fantastic record, and it's an era. It should be explored not just as a record, but as an era. It really does need to be emphasized that to hear The River as an album is to hear one thing. But then you really do need to go back and hear, you know, as Paul Harvey might say, the rest of the story. <laughs> and go get you know, just at least disc two of tracks. That'll probably do you just fine, just to hear how much music was left off of
3: it.
0: And I guess that's where we will end this part one of our look at Bruce Springsteen's career. We'll pick it up with part two, of course. Uh, And we're going to do... A little different here, of course. An
1: interesting variation.
0: Yeah, so we always do. You know, in a multi-part episode, we do give you the two albums of the five songs at the end of each episode to sort of break down the career. But because there is so much uh, material left on the cutting room floor that would eventually emerge, and because Jeff owns every second of Bruce Springsteen playing live from nineteen seventy-two through nineteen seventy-nine or whatever it is, uh, we're gonna do a, a, a we're gonna do five songs that you can find on the you know releases. And then five songs that either are, uh, are, are you know, B-sides or, or left off of albums or emerge later or, or live tracks to sort of give you a, a more fuller, uh, fuller picture of what Springsteen was doing during this time. So you're actually going to hear, well, up to 30 different songs from your three hosts here today. Uh, <laughs> Buckle we, up, buddy. Yes, <laughs> we always begin with our guest, Dan McLaughlin, senior writer at National Review. Dan, you, the two albums and then uh, a total of 10 songs.
2: All right. So the two albums of born to run has to be one of them. And honestly, I'm going to go with the river. Uh, I mean, I think the river and darkness are both, it's, it's hard to choose between the two, but I think of the two, the river has more songs that I enjoy listening to studio versions as opposed to the live versions of them. Um, but they're both tremendous albums and the river maybe gets the, uh, the vote because it's longer. So there's more music. Um, the five songs, I, I think, I mean, one of those has to be either Thunder Road or Born to Run. I'm going to go with Thunder Road. Um, I think it's just it's just a tremendously evocative piece of music. Um, Badlands, for I think the reasons that I already said. Uh, Independence Day, The Price You Pay, and I, I think we may even have an interpretive disagreement here over whether the songs that are on um, <laughs> tracks and the other releases, which which bin they belong in, but. Uh, I'm actually going with one of those here, which is Loose Ends, which is not on the. It, it was from the River Sessions. It's on. Uh, it's on tracks. It's on 18 tracks. Um, so you can get a a you know an officially released studio version of it, and it is just such a tremendous song. Uh, really, really great. Uh, you know, powerful lyrics and 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 music together. Um, the five the five not official releases. Um, Two of these are going to be covers. Uh, one is Bruce doing uh, Bob Dylan's I Want You from Live at the Main Point. And, and generally speaking, I think I think we probably are all in agreement that there's there's a lot of sort of famous great Bruce shows that you should own uh, from, you know, 78, 75, 80, you know, the Nassau Coliseum show in, in 1980, for example, on New Year's Eve. Um, but I, I think if you can only own one, um live Bruce set. It's gonna be live at the main point from early seventy-five. And he does a live version of Bob Dylan's I Want You that is just achingly beautiful. It's one of the greatest covers I've ever heard.
3: Well,
4: now
2: this kind of young man yearning um and and it has the violin and it's just beautiful the other one from that set that record that we talked about already is wings for wheels um the proto version of, of thunder road we've talked about the lyrics but don't sleep on the um just tremendous clarence sax solos at the end of that song um uh, the other cover i'm including here which is from the uh Bruce's first overseas show, which has been officially released, the hammer Smith Odeon show in uh, uh, in 1975. He closes the show with quarter to three, which was a frequent show closer. And I really think this is as good as the E Street band you're ever going to hear um, in, in any show on any track. Um, it's really just about my favorite live Bruce performance. It captures the breakneck tempo, the, the amazing cohesion of the band it's if you can see the live version of it it's kind of funny because you know clarence is in his like white three-piece suit and little stevens in his you know one of these real 70s red suits and the rest of the band is dressed like they showed up for a construction job bruce is wearing a ski hat (laughs) but um the whole performance is amazing they stop and start bruce holds the crowd in the palm of his hand um they've got you know clarence is like he's literally spinning in circles while he's doing his sax solos it's just It is a a virtuoso of of live music. Um, The two other live performances I'll add, one is, uh, I mentioned 10th Avenue Freeze, I would get any version of that, Hammer Smith or or the other 75 to 78 shows. And then finally, the um, live version of Sherry Darling from the Nassau Coliseum New Year's Eve show in 1980, uh, which is just another example of just Clarence going absolutely berserk on the saxophone at the end of that song, and it's just, it just goes on and on and on, and, and, and it is unbelievable work of, uh, of power. You know, Bruce always wanted to have, like, a 10-piece band, which he couldn't afford until uh, just the last few years. <laughs> but uh, the fact that he had to instead make Clarence his entire horn section for years uh, pays off in, in so many ways. Uh, and, and I read an interview with him recently. Bruce talked about wanting to make Clarence's sax solos sound like something you could sing. And they really are, and but but when you hear him just go absolutely go wild live, it is like nothing else.
0: All right, uh, my two albums are going to be "Darkness on the Edge of Town" and uh, "and the River." Into the songs, and I, I, I try for the songs at least to maybe give a template for people like me, who are somewhat new to Bruce Springsteen's catalog. Uh, what would be the most attractive for them? So the the five songs, the five studio songs, uh, Rosalita, uh, Thunder Road from from Born to Run, uh, Adam Raised a Cane from Darkness, along with The Promised Land from Darkness, and then uh, obviously one from The River, and I go back and forth a bit, it'd be The River or something else. I... It was the Wreck on the Highway on there uh, as the fifth song on that list of five. For the, the live and, and those left-off tracks, I, I'm not totally, um, not capable, but I'm not qualified to sort of go through these live performances and say one is so much better than the other, I think, because I have not heard anywhere near as much live material as Jeff or Dan. But There's two songs, two live performances I'll I'll, I'll point to, uh, one is the the spirit in the night from the uh, from the Hammersmith show in '75, which again, spirit in the night and the in the in the album version is fine. You'll never want to listen to it again if you hear it live. That's a fantastic version. And the other live one I'll point out is one that Dan mentioned earlier in the show, which is Incident on Fifty Seventh Street from the Nassau performance in uh, in 1980 which is out there and available. Those two live performances, I think, really elevate both of those songs quite a bit. So the three songs, uh, not on any of the albums proper, The Fever, um, I Want to Be With You, which we just talked about uh, with The River, and then At outtake From Darkness. I, I think Don't Look Back would be, again, would, would fit just fine next to anything else on the album, but just a little too similar to two of the most important tracks on there, Badlands and, and The Promised Land, and so that was left off, but don't look back as well worth tracking down. Jeff, over to you.
1: Well, uh, I'm going to surprise absolutely nobody by saying that the first album I'll choose is The Wild, The Innocent, and The E Street Shuffle. I'm actually a little bit scandalized that neither of you picked it. <laughs> uh, it is very clearly Bruce's best record. And then the second one was tough. I didn't know whether I was going to pick The River or Darkness, and I think I'm going to go with Darkness on the Edge of Town. From this year uh, uh just because it's more streamlined, it's more focused. It doesn't have the the upbeat and fun anthemic numbers that you get on uh, the the river, uh, but it it has uh, sort of a relentless, a relentless laser focus that it, it serves it very well. Even though there are a couple of tracks which I you know I think maybe maybe could have been removed and substituted out for other songs. My five songs for is just just really regular studio discography. First one would be Kitty's Back. From The Wild, The Innocent, Scott was right. He knows me well after three years of doing this <laughs> show together. He understands exactly what it is that's going to you know, honk my horn, and that is a song that absolutely does it. I love every aspect of it. I especially love the instrumental breakdown. If you want to understand why David Sanchez was so, such a wonderful part of the E Street Band in the early phase of their career, here is why. Uh, second would be Incident on 57th Street. Might be the best song of all time might be Springsteen's best song of all time. Uh, there might be another one coming up on the uh, the second episode of this show that we'll discuss that competes with it, but it's up there. Third, Thunder Road. Put a gun in my head. I have to pick one from Born to Run. It'll be Thunder Road. Fourth is The Promised Land. It's kind of the same situation on Darkness. It's a very even album. There's a lot of fantastic highlights, but The Promised Land is the one that's always spoken to me. And then finally, if I had to pick one from The River, uh, I, I, I wavered on this or point blank, but I think the one that I go with is Wreck on the Highway, which uh, I think is is probably the finest closing song that Springsteen has ever had in his career, uh, precisely for being so low-key and understated. Uh, For my five live and outtake songs, the first one I'll say is Tokyo, and the band played. It's live... uh, If you get my two-CD compilation, it's actually a hybrid of two separate performances, (laughs) but the one that, if you want to go find it on YouTube, it's June 3rd, 1974. That's the one you want. Second, I'd say Zero and Blind Terry. It's an outtake from the E Street Shuffle Sessions. Uh, Third, I'd say, this one's fairly obscure. It's a a cover of a song called You Mean So Much To Me, a wonderful old soul song that Springsteen did full band wonderfully, uh, but... uh, in this case, does uh, on a radio session acoustically. You've got Clarence just gently honking away on the saxophone in the background. You've got the guys singing backing vocals, but it's really just Bruce on an acoustic guitar and Danny Federici on accordion. It does kind of make you realize just how elemental uh, the accordion of all things was <laughs> to the early phase of Bruce Springsteen's career. The fourth out pick is She's the One. The album version I do not like. I, I think it's 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 neutered. But that early version that you can find on the famous Main Point concert from February 5th, 1975, that's amazing. That's the only way that song should ever be heard. And then the last one I'll pick, and then you know, the way to end this show is uh, maybe with the most heartbreaking song that Bruce Springsteen ever wrote. And then not moribund and you know you know endlessly gloomy and depressing and morbid the way I kind of feel like the river is, but genuinely heartbreaking and genuinely moving. And that's the alternate version of Stolen Car. Last verse of that song, uh, every time I hear it, I, I just collapse into pieces because I think it conveys uh, the inability to deal with one's mistakes and you know the hope that you can come back from it, but then that resignation that, no, you're going to keep on running and you're going to keep on fleeing from the errors that you've made for the rest of your life. That's Stolen Car. That's what that song was always about, and that it might be one of his greatest outtakes ever.
4: Last night I dreamed I made the call I swore to return and stay forevermore Once again we stood on the wedding steps at Victory Hall And walked arm and arm through the chapel door I can remember how good I felt inside When the preacher said, son, you may kiss the bride But as I leaned over to touch her pretty lips I felt it all slip away through my fingertips And I'm driving a stolen car Through a pitch-black night I keep telling myself everything
0: The political elites look on the first, well, not exactly half, but the first decade or so of Bruce Springsteen's prolific career. Back in a couple of weeks for part two, in which we'll have to cover a whole lot of time and uh, not or a whole lot of uh, of uh, recording time, and not a whole lot of show time. But that's a that's a problem for a different day.
1: I expect at least an hour on the album Magic. <laughs> <laughs> well we'll we, see about that we can't that, do we? a
2: springsteen show without a really long encore guys <laughs>
1: that's a good point <laughs> we're going to come back and play twist and shout for eight minutes
0: we we uh, thank our guest on the program a senior writer for national review dan mclaughlin you can find him on twitter at baseball crank dan we expect you to be back for the next show or else it's going to be very awkward all right Thanks to uh, Jeff Blair, of course. We finally take care of at least half of one of the big ones left hanging out there, and uh, I-, I hope we have uh, done justice thus far.
1: We're big game hunters, Scott. We're taking down
0: all the big beasts. Yes. Find Jeff online at EsotericCD. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me at Scott Bertram on Twitter. Subscribe to our feed. New episodes coming to you through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Go right to NationalReview.com and click on Podcasts. You can find us there as well. This is Political Beats. Find us on Twitter, too, at political underscore beats. Join the conversation or on Facebook as well. Search for Political Beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats.